Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. We are in no position to be able to defend ourselves in any way whatsoever. Ireland is defenceless. Every time that it happens, we have to talk about how the good men feel. Help us. Without G backing us, putting it on the air and telling the people how important it is, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. You know, it's, uh, it's more than a few years now. I'm not going to tell you when, but it is more than a few years since uh, I went in to sit my leaving cert. It's a lot more than a few years, actually, since I went in to sit my leaving cert. But I will, aren't indeed my intro as it was then, or junior cert as it is now, but I still remember the nerves. I still remember the, the collie wobbles. I still remember the fact that I didn't taste a morsel of my breakfast. I still remember the fact that I didn't know my knees would work when I stood out of the car. So, so it look, it... it I know exactly how it feels, and it's it's a feeling that never leaves you. I want to read something just to kick us off this morning before we talk briefly about leaving search and talk a bit of the things. Um, this originated, I do believe, in Singapore, and uh, it gets shared on social media this time every year. And it's a note that was sent home by a school principal to parents just at the time that the children were about to start their exams. And he said, I know you're all really anxious for your child to do well, but please do remember, among the students who'll be sitting the exams, there's an artist who doesn't need to understand maths. There's an entrepreneur who doesn't care about history or English literature. There's a musician whose chemistry marks won't matter. There's an athlete whose physical fitness is more important than actual physics. If your child does get top marks, that's great. But if he or she doesn't, please don't take away their self-confidence and dignity from them. Tell them it's okay, it's just an exam. They're cut out for much bigger things in life. Tell them no matter what they score, you love them and you won't judge them. Please do this and when you do, watch your children conquer the world. One exam or one low mark won't take away their dreams or their talent. And please don't think that doctors or engineers are the only really happy people in the world. That's ancient and came from a school in Singapore many moons ago. And it's nice that it gets shared on this particular day of the year. It's something I think, Don O'Leary, that you resonate with because the whole ethos of the Life Centre resonates with it. How many do you have starting 
exams today, Don? Good morning. Good morning, PJ. Uh, 24. Right. Uh, both Levy cert and junior cert. I, I, I fully agree with what, what, what that piece said. I, I, look, I think for me, you know, the journeys that the kids have made here, you know, we've taken part in with them. I, I'm hugely proud I said that in the last day of school. Um, and I couldn't be more prouder than I was then, and as I am now. And I will be, in the, regardless of what exams do, because, you know, our, our system, <laughs> I mean, you, you were saying that, because you did this. Like, here, here's the, the, the terrible irony of all that. In all that time, my leaving cert, your leaving cert, were the same as it is now. I mean, it is absolutely ludicrous, ludicrous. The problem is, though, we have got parents agitated and up to 90 because... Every child has to go to university. No, they don't. No, they don't. It, it, it's not going to be. And, and, and if you look at the number of young people that leave university, it's in first year. And it's in first year because the, these exams don't prepare you for third level. Just don't. They don't. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And I think young people, like, it, it's more important than the journeys. I mean, I, I have young people doing the exams here this morning. One of them was two years out of school prior to coming to me. Um. We have uh, young people who, who haven't, who haven't because of, of COVID, uh, um, missed school for, for, for two years. Now, putting pressure on these kids to, for some imaginary points, what are points? Well, what do the points do? The points don't say anything about you, except that you're very good at remembering stuff you were taught over three years, mm-hmm. or two years, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. I mean, we, we need to give young people the ability to go into these, relax, do them to the best of their ability, mm-hmm. and, and to understand that they're not all going to get 625 points. And why should they? Why, why should they? I mean, if we think, if we think about uh, a, a, a fish, and everyone says the fish has huge potential, if we judge the fish, though, on how they climb a tree, <laughs> we're never going to... Like, that, that fish is gone. Like, well, the, the fish is no use. The it's, argument that always does come back, though, Don, is, and I guess that we have to give it some cognizance, is there must be some way to assess how far the kids have come at this stage in their life. You know what I'd say to you, Peter? It, yeah, but the Levy Cert isn't this. And we need yeah. that. And the issue here has to be, we need to reform the Leaving Cert. We need to reform it so that it... If a young person wants to do psychology, do you understand what the terminology is doing when they're, leaving, when they're, they're, they're after doing their, that, the so-called leaving cert? So putting in extras like that and giving them a choice of looking at what, what they might like to do. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Or maybe there are a few out there. I know this. At 18, you don't know what you... You can't tell me you're going to find what's going to keep you happy for the rest of your life in a position. The other thing is, you know, doctors might make loads of money, uh, Dentists, um, you know, you go across the range. Engineers, software developers, they might. Mm. Electricians and carpenters and plasterers and bricklayers also make money. They do. Here's the thing. Even that, though, is in a situation. The thing I want to see on my kids here, um, at the end of June, is that when they walk out the red door, that they know the red door is open to them to come back. They also know that... They can get on in life, that they can be happy in life, that, that, you know, they can go there with confidence. They're not less than, they're more than. Every child, every single child around the country, not just the kids I'm dealing with here, deserves the pressure to be taken off. We started in in, in a couple, give it it five, six days, and we're going to be talking about points. Stop. Yeah. Stop. Like, we're putting pressure on children that they don't need. They, They just do not need it. 
telling people that they need 625 points, it's only meant to do one thing, and that's make a child anxious. All that then transfers into how they sit and do an examination, and we need to back off. Anxious people make bad decisions on exam day. Yeah, I, 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 I think, look, you know, <laughs> I, I've talked to the kids right through the thing here. They, they don't think I'm going to talk to me about points, right? They won't. But we're with, we're with them. That's all I can do. I, I, I'm mm-hmm. on that journey with them. And we'll always be in that journey with them if they need us. So if they want to phone me and come back. I mean, I, I, have, I have a young person who is doing, who's going to do, two young people actually going to do their masters. Um, one of them uh, took a, a straight route and the other one took a roundabout route. And, and did about two other courses before the event. I, I have a young person this year who is not, who, who is usually, usually academic, but, but whose intention is um, to, to go to PLC, take courses that, that, that she says she's not thinking about at the moment to take them forward, but just to give her that more, more situation. 16, 17, 18 year olds going into university. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you're taking them from a, a position where they're not going to think for themselves to where they're supposed to be free thinkers. Um, like how, how, how we need to be building what the kids need not what we want them and I, I, there's people who come back and say well I had to do the leaving sir yeah and you probably got built around the classroom do you want that for your child now so why should you want mm-hmm. we've been through something it was the system that was there for us what? and we went through it and you don't expect the kids to go back to it they don't want it but we do want them to do the leaving sir and go through it Talk to people about the Leaving Cert. I, I, I thought, well, I'll be quite honest. I was a Spanish in the Leaving Cert. It was a waste of time to me. I went in for 10 minutes, I walked out, and I did the best thing that I ever did. I went to be able to play the game of pitch and put. <laughs> right? No. I, for me, I, I'm, I'm where I am now. Not, I, I believe, because I'm passionate about working with young people, but also I, 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 I walk with them, really enjoy working with teenagers, really enjoy working with kids, do you know what the problem is? The problem is this time of year. Kids that have made journeys, kids that are, and there are some kids on that is really, really well, they're really, really bright, don't get me wrong. But my job is to keep them, to, to, get, to try and support the anxiety, get them to walk with the anxiety, and then in, in four weeks, we tell them all, oh, your life is going to be decided on how you're doing the leaving cert. Because while people aren't saying that, the 625 pounds is not appearing on the paper. Yeah. I know. And, and you should be anxious. There's so many people anxious in, in the world. Yeah. Listen. It's, it's not good for them. Do it. No child is born anxious. We make them that way. And so why do we, why do we keep doing it year in? That's, that's a very, very good point, Don. No child is born anxious. Oh. We make them that way. Can I just bring something else up with you? And because you, you took to, I knew you were going to, of course, or I knew you were on the verge of it, shall we say. You took to Twitter over the last few days. Um, and we talked briefly about that report that came out in May. Do you believe, Don, that there are forces afoot within the Department of Education that would like to close those magic red doors behind which magic happens? That's been the, that's been the truth since we opened. Um, unfortunately for our Department of Education, um, they, they have one system. They don't believe in any other system. They believe in formal education. If there are, if there are issues to be, to be dealt with, they should be dealt with in that system. So, yeah, they, they put money into this. I always ask about the dish thing. What happens when a child is anxious and they're not in their school? 
You know, all, all, all children should be treated equally within the education system. We should also recognise that 28 years of reports have been thrown out the window by a review, a review that is done over the date, because we took part in that review enthusiastically. Uh, we brought young people to Dublin, we, 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 we made our own submission. It took five years to bring it out. I've asked from the, from the day one, can I have oversight for factual correction of this report? Well, I, I leave this to people. You, 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 you just heard how many kids I have doing the exams, right? Mm. They, 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 in that report, it tells you that there was only one child in any of this. There's 23, group, 23 uh, agencies involved in this, in, in relation to schools or, or centres. And they, what they said, in all those 23, there was only three, three, in one place they said there was only three doing leave research. In another place it says two. And then it finally says in some other part of the report, one. But there was only one child that's leave research over the last three years. In the period they're talking about, we, and, and they had it because we had to fill in a data sheet for them, we had 28 students complete to leave research. And I know there's another place that would have been the same. Now, you know, I, I talked to you there about how, how young people are treated. They, 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 they were in this. One of the recommendations were in this report is if a child runs into a problem, you take them out. I, I'm describing this now because this is what I think they're at. For 12 weeks, you take them out of the, the education system for 12 weeks. At 13 to 15, no mind you, no other age groups. And, and you put them into something. And after the 12 weeks, the child is fixed and they go back into school. Now, Sure, there are, I'm sure there are professionals, mental health and otherwise, right around the world, waiting to see the tools that the department are going to use in it. Because it seems to me like it's a garage. You take the car in, it's fixed. How do you fix trauma? How do you fix uh, eating disorders? How do you fix mental health? In 12 weeks, uh, like our centre is built on relationships. Hugely important. Not exams, relationships. And I'm not saying schools aren't either now. But if you have that attitude, and if you talk about children that way, and your job and your role as a Department of Education in Ireland is to support children to get the best education they need, not what you think is right, but what they need, I'm a failing. We're, we're yeah. a failing. The first time you and I spoke on this programme, Don, uh, you were in a position where you were struggling to keep the doors open. This and is worse. I know, and I don't know how many years later we are now. It's the bones of ten, I suppose, and... Well, well, well I tell you, see, see I, <coughs> there's always a piece of this. I can't keep taking kids and parents to the edge and then be able to crawl back. Every young person, every school that's opening this morning for leaving certs, know that the first years they're taking it in September will be with them until leaving cert. I want that opportunity for my children. However, if you don't give me sustainable funding, then I'm not going to do it. And the issue for me is, and this has been the issue, I know what the department, when press people got into the department, they know what they're going to say. Oh, we gave them money last year, and when, this, when the review of this review is done, um, we will look at it again. It's rubbish, because it, I, I can't take kids. I, I refuse to believe even, or to take 12 kids. Our system would not be able to take kids for 12 weeks. Number one, it's a false premise. But, you know, you're not going to do anything or support children in 12 weeks. A lot of the children that come in here have low self-esteem. A lot of the children come in here have had issues in relation to, to the school. Now, they're not going to dissipate. I mean, they're, they're not. Like, after 12 weeks, they're not. And, and the trust issue 
You know, mm. these kids sometimes have, have, have and lots of kids do. Well, I mean, you, you've talked with me, Don, about kids who they were there nearly a year before they said, hi, Don. Yeah, I, I, I have a young person that's doing their master's this year who has been back, they took a break after their, who's been volunteering into the centre doing maths for the last two years. I think they're meant to do maths, like, when you maths teachers like maths. But, but <laughs> that's what the person wants to do. That young person could not answer the phone, and the only better young person had communicating with me, and they were here three years. Communicating myself with Rachel was by note. Uh, and know where that young person is. Wow. Is the incredible. young person anxious? Yes. However, like I saw it, the young person has now got skills, which yeah. they gave themselves. We cannot change anyone's life. Don, are you looking to have to... I'm reading from a piece you did in Corpio, and I'm also reading... Or a piece Corpio did, and I also read your Twitter thread the other night. Um, are you in the position now where you're looking around at your teachers and your staff and you're thinking, who do I have to let go? Uh, yes. I have a staff meeting tomorrow night and uh, the parents from the but there's a desire to the parents, prospective parents, for a meeting on next Monday. Um, I, I, you know me and anybody that knows me, you know, those two meetings will break my heart. Yeah. There is absolutely no way of saying that when you're meeting parents uh, I'm saying that, you know, I said I'd be able to take the charges. No, I can't. And, and, you know, they do this. The department do this. This is, uh, this is June. Um, the schools are finished up. I have to speak to my parents. And they know this, so I have to speak to my parents. If I, if I can't educate these kids, if I can't bring these kids in here to be educated, they need to make sure that we have an opportunity to find placements for these kids. I know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure he will. I'm I'm definitely not sure he will. But you'll do your you'll you'll do your absolute best, Don. I I I I know how much it'll take out of you to to sit at those meetings next week, and how much it'll break your heart and Rachel's heart, and the hearts of everybody else up there. Um, and it's it's a disgrace. It's not just sad. It's not just unfortunate. It's an absolute disgrace that we're having these conversations. Don O'Leary of the Cork Life Centre, and uh, where they've. 20-odd kids starting exams today and to everyone starting exams in Cork this morning. The very best of luck to you and to your entire family. They can call me. Wayne Hilton. Wayne Hilton. On Cork's 96FM. Join me Saturday mornings from 10. I've got four hours of the best music mix. Check out the Cork Weekend Survey. Have a go at the Wayne Teaser question. There's the latest celebrity goss. A look at what's happening around town. And we'll keep you up to date with all your essential Cork news. Wayne Hilton. Saturdays, 10 a.m. With CarMax Used Car Supermarket. Dublin Road for Moyne. Great deals on hundreds of cars. Just a short drive from the tunnel. Visit C-A-R-M-A-X. CarMax.ie. On Cork's. 96 FM. Kate says we need more tradespeople. Uh, friends are waiting for five and a half months now for a plumber. A lot of people going to uni have no life skills. Academia is not the only way. Cork Kaipu, I, I wish I knew who you were, and in all these years I've never quite figured out who you are. <laughs> One week they have to ask permission to go to the toilet. The next week they have to decide what they want to do with the rest of their lives, which puts it very well. Jimmy says the leaving search is not the end of the world. Best of luck to all those sitting it, but it's not the most important thing in life. 
Michael, we need more Don O'Leary's in the world. Well done to all the staff and all the students at the Life Centre. So many lack self-worth, says Ed. Don't let these exams define you. Uh, anxious kids lead to antidepressants, relaxers, or even illicit drugs. And we'll be talking with Michael Gearn in a while about, among other things, um, people taking young people taking cocaine. It's in the newspaper today. A huge surge in the number of young people taking cocaine. When you tie the stresses that Don was talking about and the anxiety that we know exists, is it any wonder? Is it any wonder at all? And as Don says, children aren't born with anxiety. We give it to them. The world gives it to them. 0818 96 96 96. We're with Foot Solutions today, once again, looking back at the last 15 years since Foot Solutions opened on the Grand Parade. We have a €150 gift card to give you every day. We're going to play a little piece of audio from an event that happened in the past 15 years. You need to guess what the event is and then text or WhatsApp your answer and your name to 083 396 96 96. Remember, Foot Solutions, uh, free your feet and the rest will follow. So you'll recognise the voices again. And this is kind of their their shtick. But I want you to tell me what were they talking about? Or where were they? Or what were they doing? I just want you to tell me what were they talking about here? Simple enough, You're really. You're taking really. too complex, really. <laughs> well, just, it'd be as fast as you can go. Start to finish. Close your eyes and pull like a dog. What were they talking about? Simple enough, You're really. You're taking yeah. too complex, really. <laughs> well, just... It'd be as fast as you can go. Uh, Start to finish. Close your eyes and pull like a with the answer and your name, please. And we'll keep it going for the morning. Draw our winner just before 12. Something that has come up frequently on the programme is the issue of people being able to get a GP or to move GP. Or if your GP leaves a practice and you don't feel happy in that practice anymore, you want to move to another practice. The difficulty of trying to get a GP, just change your doctor in 2022. It's a lot more complex than it needs to be. I've been speaking to Tara. Tara, a couple of weeks ago, you heard me talking to Mary-Kate about her difficulty in finding a GP since she'd moved to Cork. Now, you're trying to find a GP for both yourself and your son. Yeah, um, we we are currently with a GP, but um, unfortunately, uh, it's just not a very supportive one. Um, the, the GP that I had initially there um, was a lovely GP, but um, took early retirement um, about three or four years ago. And since then, it's been <clears throat> very difficult for us. Um, I've gone through my own stuff over the last few months just struggling with um, just trauma, anxiety, stress mm. a lot of things have happened and I don't feel like I can go to my GP with that um, just I think even just ringing um, and waiting three three weeks to get a call back or something it's just it's just not um, it's just not okay yeah um, I think you know waiting weeks to try and be prescribed something and then not having proper management of that, I think is 
shocking. So you would be looking for someone to, to meet and to talk to, but you can't. And then it takes a long time for them to, whoever's coming back yeah. to, to come back to you. What about your, your son then? Yeah, um, just similar. He he, he has um, special needs. He's, he has a disability. Um, and I find very poor understanding there as well for that. Um, now, he does have a good um, paediatrician, but it's very hard. Um, like, And I've, on certain occasions, I have had to go up to um, the hospital mm-hmm. for the paediatrician because... Um, I just have not a very supportive GP. Mm. And you're tr- you're trying to transfer to another practice, but you're not having much much luck ringing around. No, I and I I I've been on a waiting list for um, one particular practice. Um, I think there's several GPs in it, and I would have rang them regularly over the last few months, checking to see you know what's and I was told yeah there'll be a meeting you know and. You know, we will see what you know what new patients we can take on, and then I think it was last week when I rang the yeah I was told um, that the waiting list is gone, and I just I said well, what what do you mean? She said well we're after taking in 170 Ukrainian families in the area, and I said but what about us? You know, and it was a case of well sorry, and I I that just made me extremely angry, like. I just thought to myself, Jesus, like I said, there's there's still people like me who still require help. They probably look at you and say, well, look, Tara, it might be a perfect situation, but you currently have a doctor. That might be how they're looking at it. Yeah, but I'm in a, a situation over the last few months because I don't have um, a, a supportive, I don't have a supportive GP. I don't feel like um, someone who, who wants support or is seeking support is even is even considered like my GP just doesn't seem to really. You, you don't feel that you get a sympathetic hearing when you go there. No. no. And I just feel like it's just, it's more than that. Like, you know, I feel where we live. I just don't, don't feel like part of a, a supportive community mm-hmm. either. Um, I suppose with my child and his needs, um, he never got to, go to a local school here. So he goes to a, a school in the city. Yes. And then for any activities, um, I think just not going to a local school, not having the chance of that for him has, has probably isolated us both somewhat. And for any activities to cater for him and his needs, then it's like a 60 to 80 kilometre round trip several times a week for me. Um, like the, the price of petrol and Three times this week, I was filling up at a petrol station. Like, I live in a local authority house and I've applied for a transfer, but I find the county council, I find them very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think it's like several people in the medical profession. Um, people in the council also seem to lack empathy and understanding. May I ask if you have a medical card or your son has a medical card? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. So you're trying to get, obviously, transfer the medical card as well to another practice. Yeah. But in in terms of transferring out of here to a more suitable location, so everything isn't so onerous, I think um, if there's some counsellor or TD out there that can assist with that, that would be great. Yeah, yeah. So you're on a transfer list for the counsellor, are you? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, 
it just gets very overwhelming, I think, when you're trying to deal with and, and navigate all of that. Mm. I think um, everything, you know, it's even I looked at trying to take him away for a few days in July or August like we would normally do. Yeah. But the, the price of hotels are shocking. So we ended up booking a, a few days in a caravan park. And I don't don't know how he'll cope with that. But um, <clears throat> I think people are just <clears throat> struggling trying to do the normal things that they would do yeah. <clears throat> and trying to access the normal things before the COVID. I think things were things were bad, you know, and now we seem to be post COVID and it's it's just even worse for people, I find. Mm. And you were making it very clear to me, you, you don't begrudge a doctor, you don't begrudge a place in a school, you don't begrudge anything to the Ukrainian refugees. You're just saying, come here, I'm here too. Yeah. Yeah, like a balance, you know, like there's still people in our communities that require help. So I think there needs to be a balance and it's just not there at the moment. It's just not. Go back to your your health for a minute. I understand that you're on medication. I mean, who's monitoring that for you at the moment? Oh, God. Um, Yeah, when I was I was put on medication for, I suppose, just dealing with um, anxiety and and stress. Um, But who's monitoring the treatment is the question. Nobody? My GP has just taken a back step. I just, I've had to, I suppose what I was put on initially, um, I was quite sick from it. Um, And then something else that I was put on was overly sedating. Um, And I found it difficult to function the following morning. Um, And I don't think they get that at all. I think, you know, the answer is just throw a load of medication at someone and, you know, they'll, they'll cope with that. But, you know, the wraparound supports that someone needs um, need to be provided as well. And you don't seem to get that. And I think one of your son's doctors was even concerned about you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I would have, would have tried to, to help um, manage the medication for me a little bit better. And that's what I've done. My, my GP would have been aware that I needed um, a nutritional um, therapist. Okay. I was told from a mental health team that um, there's actually only one in Cork, um, so you'll be waiting quite a while. Um, but yeah, I've I found something um, that I that I've been able to take that you know would would relax you a bit and and help you to manage that a bit better. And um, I've just had to try and reduce some of my medication and, and split it up until, you know, I'm able to tolerate it better. See, this isn't something you should be trying to manage on your own, Tara. This is not, Yeah. No, no. But that's, that's, I think that's where people are at. If anybody is listening who might have access to a GP practice or be a GP themselves and may want to help you, you just want someone to meet and go over everything with you and see would they take you on and maybe transfer your medical card. Is that it? Yeah, and also um, um, get the county council to, we're just looking for, you know, a, a better quality of life for us both, really, you know. 
Tara, I wish you both well, and thanks for speaking with me. You would never know who might be listening and, and who might have I know. advice for you, do you know? Yeah, that would be great. Um, thank you, PJ. You're more than welcome. Take care. The Cork Diary. On Cork's 96FM. The Cork Diary is a free service. So if you're a community group, a not-for-profit organisation, or you have a fundraising event you would like mentioned, let us know and we'll tell Cork all about it. Email the details to corkdiary at 96fm.ie. Cork's 96FM. A couple of interesting uh, stories to do with both drink and drugs in the news today. One is the front page of The Examiner where it says hospital emergencies caused by drink and drug taking among young people are on the rise and there's been an alarming spike in cases involving cocaine. The other one comes from Scotland where it says that their minimum pricing on alcohol, which remember came in here in January and we were told it was going to be the saviour of so many things and so many people. It's not working. In Scotland, they're saying, well, actually, it hasn't really changed the habits of those who suffer the worst effect of alcoholism. Let's bring uh, Michael Gearan uh, from Coonward and Brewery in on both of those. Michael, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'll start with the, um, with the minimum pricing, which the reports out of Scotland indicate that the habits it wanted to change or they wanted to change using minimum pricing, that they haven't changed. Good morning. Good morning, PJ, and it's good to talk to you. Yes, sir. And I suppose it's interesting to see the, the report from Scotland that the minimum unit pricing um, provisions which they introduced there didn't have the desired effect as, as far as they were concerned. There have been other encouraging reports of minimum unit pricing introduction from places like Australia and so on, where they saw a great reduction in the number of for example, alcohol related to admissions to accident and emergency departments. And mm. um, I suppose the whole notion of minimum unit pricing is that the area where it has an effect on is the middle ground. And by the middle ground, I mean the harmful drinkers as opposed to the alcohol addicted cohort of the population. Right. Because the uh, people who are addicted to alcohol price really isn't relevant. They will they will set aside other things, often essential items, and fixate upon and prioritize the alcohol consumption. But but minimum unit pricing was seen to be an, an effective measure against harmful binging um on alcohol whereby the price would discourage people yeah. from taking that course of action. Two things, if you go into any off-licence of your choice now, Michael, you'll find that what I might call mid-range, mid-range white wine, mid-range red wine, it's gone up a euro, maybe a euro fifty. It hasn't gone through the roof. Now, the slabs of beer have gone through the roof. But people who bought two bottles of white wine with their shopping are still buying two bottles of white wine with their shopping. So that, that hasn't stopped. No, and I, I suppose <clears throat> that's a good thing in a way in that the people who are drinking responsibly um, in that situation aren't hit to any great extent in terms of price. Yeah. I suppose it was all geared towards, again, going back, that kind of links into the other story, that there was an unholy amount of young people turning up in places like A&E's in a bad way from yeah. drinking too much. Yeah. And the whole notion with minimum unit pricing, there was a belief, and it was a correct belief, that alcohol through multiple retailers in strong 
concentrations and in big quantities was too cheap and minimum unit pricing was an attempt to address that anomaly yeah. in the market I suppose. I guess that the one thing we heard at the time too that in the house where there is an alcoholic the alcoholic won't, lo- won't miss out on their drink but children might lo- miss out on their dinner. And there you are you see there's the problem and that's particularly relevant now when you see the increases in the cost of living that have taken place in the intervening time, that like everybody is shorter of money now than we were six months ago. And there's no doubt about it, people who are fully blown alcoholic will prioritise alcohol over stable items like, for example, food. Is is that a kind of an unfortunate side effect? of trying to make it make it better for the rest of us or something like that. It is. And you see, the thing about minimum unit pricing, while it has been seen to be effective in some places, it's very much a blunt, indiscriminate instrument in that it doesn't discriminate between the responsible drinker, the harmful drinker and the alcoholic. So it has various effects on those various tiers of people in terms of their alcohol consumption. So in Scotland, they may, they may change their tack, we'll see. Now, the one on the front of the examiner particularly interests me, and also I'll be talking uh, later this morning with Dr. Chris Luke um, about various things, but I'll bring this up with him. Um, cocaine, a spike in the taking of cocaine among young people. Now, you're quoted in the article on the examiner, but Michael, you and I spoke about this a long time ago. You pointed to this a long time ago. Yeah, I'd say it could have been four or five years ago, PJ, that we recognised that this this ramping up of cocaine, there had been a little bit of a fall off after the financial crisis and the, Celt- the whole Celtic Tiger era. Um, but cocaine has taken on a completely new significance now in terms of substance misuse in Ireland. Cocaine historically was linked to affluent professional high-earning people who used to use cocaine in in party situations and some of them would go on to develop an addiction to cocaine. No cocaine is everywhere in Ireland. Rurals, towns, villages, cities, everywhere. And I mean, we, we, genu- we genuinely have no idea the extent to which cocaine is being traded and consumed recreationally, harmfully and addictively all around us. We're knee-deep in it, aren't we? Well, we need you at, but we're neck deep, I'd say, PJ, to, to be quite honest. And I mean, we were talking there in the article. We see all these seizures of cocaine taking place by the Gardaí, which is a good thing. But we never see a shortage of supply to the end user, which is giving us an idea of the actual vast amounts of cocaine that are being brought into Ireland illegally and being traded, you could say, on every street corner at this stage. It, it's, it's, I can't articulate are put in towards the, the extent to which I believe cocaine has infiltrated Irish society. Is it being abused more than cannabis now? It's, it's the, 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 the report says it's not being consumed more than cannabis. It's, it's certainly a far more dangerous drug than cannabis. Of course. And yeah. it is a higher addictive potential than cannabis and the potential for harm is far higher. So I would personally think, without having any data to back this up, I would say cocaine is the number one drug in terms of the the harm it is going to cause over the next short to medium term. Like in in your work with the people that come to you and say, I need your help, Michael. Again, we've talked about this many times. You know, alcohol is an ever-present Cannabis is never present. That's where they started. Are you seeing more people presenting to you now where cocaine was the introductory drug? 
Yeah, you see, this is the very interesting part now, PJ. It would appear to me, um, and this is just one man's opinion, that cocaine is being is being taken into this milieu of substances with which young people um, experiment during their adolescent years. And we have clients now coming to us in their early 20s telling us that they have used cocaine as young as the age of 15. Not only that, they are telling us that the people who supplied them with the cannabis in their younger years introduced them to cocaine at that point. So there's very good, strong anecdotal evidence coming to us from the testimony of the clients that, that is telling us that cocaine now is becoming almost a rite of passage in this country. Um, its consumption has been come, become so normalised. One of the things that I found most frightening uh, over the years was reading a report that young women who were trying to lose weight and got into one of these diet fads started taking cocaine. Yeah, um, because cocaine is one of these, because it's a stimulant, it speeds up your metabolic rate and you turn to burn off food um, far quicker than if, if you didn't take it. And the other thing about cocaine is the use of cocaine is reasonably easy to hide insofar as people are quite obvious when they are under the influence of alcohol or any other sedative, whereas cocaine users are not that easy to, to spot um, people who are in stimulants they have a higher level of awareness and they're sharper and they're, they're more active and more animated, certainly. But they don't go falling around the place like people who would be intoxicated from alcohol or any other sedative would. So that's the reason why a lot of cocaine abuse seems to go under the radar as well, is that people are not necessarily tuned into its effects. Now, Michael, we have instruments like uh, minimum pricing and people can differ on its effectiveness and that's that's fine that's a matter for debate we can we can do that uh, to try and tackle our alcohol issues what the hell can we do to try and tackle the fact that we are like you said neck deep in cocaine well again going back to the point that you said there we spoke about this a number of years ago we again spoke about that really the only answer and the only possible solution to, to extricate ourselves in this very serious situation is to stop creating potential new addicts at the younger end of the scale. So we really need to look at this stage of putting something really meaningful into our secondary schools in terms of education and prevention um, for the dangers of over-enthusiastic alcohol consumption and consumption of illicit drugs in any shape or form for our young people mm. because that's sadly lacking and that's where I feel the battle is being won and lost because the clients we are meeting in early adulthood, in every case, the seed was sown when they were secondary school going age. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the intervention needs to be, yeah. you but see, I am you, you, pretty you have, certain. You have the problem, Michael, that you know when you're 14 or 15 and someone like yourself, Michael, goes and stands at the top of the classroom the tendency is, oh, there was an old man in today talking about drugs. And that, doesn't, yeah. that message doesn't drop. So we have to find some way that does drop. Yes, absolutely. And I would see the young way as being young people. Um, some people don't agree necessarily with the testimony of people who have fallen foul of drugs being given to young people. I think it might be quite effective. You are right, 50-something-year-old fellas like me are not relevant at all in terms of, of mm. teenagers um, and going in to speak to them. But certainly there needs to be 
addiction professionals in schools as well. Um, counseling in schools has been more um, um, has not has been more directed towards general counselling than addiction counselling. But maybe for a start, the school counsellors need to upskill in addiction, possibly. But there certainly needs to be some sort of educational module. Right. Now, someone has just been on the phone here, Michael, and again, this comes up all the time whenever you and I talk. As why does cannabis have to be brought into everything? I've been on it for 12 years. I don't think it's addictive or harmful or a gateway drug. I'll tell you what the problem is. It's tablets. People aren't factoring this into the equation. It often starts with a prescription drug and then gets overlooked. I know a lot of people who started that way. And a couple of weeks ago, Michael, I did speak to a man here on the phone who injured his back, got started on one of these strong painkillers, and he is now totally addicted. We should never forget an awful lot of the addiction that's out there is to legitimate stuff given over the counter. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, nobody has spoken more vocally in the past about the dangers of benzodiazepine misuse and opiate misuse in its prescribed form than I have. And it's absolutely, in terms of, of harmfulness, um, prescription, certain prescription medications would rate far above cannabis in terms of their addictive potential and their danger. Um, I suppose we speak about cannabis in um, in terms of it being one of the drugs that people encounter along the way um, on their journey to ending up dealing with somebody like me with a very serious issue at that point. Yeah. Um, some people take cannabis recreationally and don't become addicted. Equally, a lot of people drink alcohol recreationally yes. and socially and yes. don't become addicted. Yes. So I suppose in that respect, that does not alter the fact. And, that and some people, people take cannabis there. for pain and it, genu- and, it, and it genuinely seems to have some effect on it. You're also being told here, Michael, some Garda informants are told to say they were put on the path to cannabis uh, and to say that to a judge that they started on cannabis and they'll get a lighter sentence. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That's surely... I know. I, I yeah, I don't think I've ever come across that one. It's it's a weird one, but it's it's a, a view that's coming on the phone. Michael, always a pleasure to speak with you. Michael Gearan uh, from Brewery, from uh, Coonverda and Brewery. What that man does not know about drugs and addiction and dealing with people who are addicted to drugs and drink, it, it ain't worth talking about. Thanks, Michael, as always. 0818 96 96 96. I mentioned uh, Dr. Chris Luke, and I'm delighted to say that he will be my guest in studio after 10 o'clock because Dr. Chris Luke uh, is celebrating this month a very significant anniversary. And when I was reading his book, which I've recently read for the second time, when I was reading his book, I made note that when it would come around, I needed to speak to him about it. So we will do that after the 10 o'clock news. When we're adoring Adele, are you thinking, it's not easy on me? And has our love of Justin Bieber got you not wanting to stay? What I want. Tell us the music you want to hear. And what songs should disappear with the Cork's 96FM Music Panel. Take our 10-minute music survey. And you could win a 100 euro penny voucher. Give it a go right now. Find the link on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Or see 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM.
Beautiful morning out there now over our beautiful city and a man sitting opposite me took one look when he came in the studio and said, my God, look out at that. And I don't think, Chris Luke, I don't think you've ever sat opposite me in the studio, even though we've probably talked to each other dozens of times. That's I don't think right, PJ. No, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you very much for the for the invitation. Yeah, it's it's something that I, I thought that we'd, we'd have to talk about when I was reading your book for the second time. Uh, generally, when one reads a book for for the radio, you kind of fly through it and then you read it more in depth the second time. And then I noticed you're 40 years a doctor this month, Chris. Congratulations. Thank you, PJ. That's extremely kind and extremely worrying. <laughs> you graduated from UCD in June 82. That's right. Happy days. Yeah. Before the, uh, the, one, the one and two uh, suddenly struck me. We had a lovely holiday in the island of Giglio, which was famous for the, the Costa Concordia crash uh, you know, recent, more recently. But we, we stayed, a gang of medical students, final meds, after our exams, we stayed in a fantastic pizza, pizzeria, above a pizzeria with the most wonderful pizzas. And we spent a week diving into the sparkling waters of the Mediterranean off Giglio, a real paradise. And then, of course, the following Monday, we were catapulted into the reality of uh, working every second night and working 100 hours a week. It was some shock to the system, I tell you that. Yeah. And you were did your tour of the various hospitals, as one does when you're a newly qualified doctor, and then you went off to the UK, spent 14 years there in Scotland and in Liverpool. Um, why emergency medicine, Chris, when, as a young graduate, you have every possibility in front of you. You can focus on anything you want at that point in your career. Why emergency medicine? Well, they say, PJ, that uh, emergency physicians are those those mad medics uh, with very short attention spans who work in emergency departments uh, tend, to, tend to just love the diversity. They love the action, the activity. They love fixing things and then moving on to the next thing. And of course, our our ancestors, as, as to where, were literally, you know, mi- missionary medics and military medics. In other words, in the 1960s, when the specialty of accident and emergency medicine was first established, the first consultants in the specialty were retiring missionary medics coming back from Africa and India uh, and military medics who were retired, of course, as you, as you know, at about, you know, 50, 55. Mm. So they were brought in uh, back in the 60s to sort of supervise what was then the back door of most uh, hospitals particularly the charitable hospital, to run what was called in those days the casualty department and to put some kind of order because the casualty departments were the sort of, I suppose, they were the legacy of the, the, the monasteries, the almshouses, the, the infirmaries of the, of, of the Middle Ages and the, and the 18th century. Uh, but what used to happen, you know, in places, cities like Britain, like, like Cork and Dublin and London and Edinburgh, was that the back gates would be opened every morning and a crowd of the indigent, the poor, would, 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 would pile in and the gentlemen physicians and the gentlemen surgeons would spend, you know, about an hour looking at uh, as many of them as you could poss- possibly see. And I remember reading in the British Medical Journal, or perhaps The Lancet, how the, the average consultation lasted about 90 seconds. And, I mean, there were some diagnosticians, that's all I can say, suggest um, but that was the only free uh, healthcare back yeah. in back in the day but but gradually it became obvious to the politicians and to people in, in general that there needed to be, to be some sort of system whereby people could come urgently to the hospital not worry about the finances uh, and be seen uh, when, when clinically needed and that was the origins and uh, you know our forebears as I say were, were, were people who had spent their time dealing in war zones uh, and in, in you know in, in mission hospitals and that seems entirely appropriate it's a place 
place where you do the most for the most with the least resources mm. and it, it tends to be a, 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 a ultimately a matter of crowd control. As we heard this morning, PJ, on your news about our That's currently right. uh, congested emergency department in the city. That's right, and per- almost permanently congested, I think is, is fair to say, from, from the time that you came to Cork and took on... And, uh, when, I, when I... Were you mad, Chris? Three hospitals, yes. one contract, one man. Were you mad? Or were the people who wrote that contract up, were they mad? Well, that that's a very, very interesting uh, discussion. The thing is, uh, PJ, I was desperate to go back to Ireland. I and I, I, was, uh, I was away for 14 years in what I described as medical exile. But, you know, there was only one or two or three jobs advertised in the whole of the Republic in those 14-odd years. And, uh, you know, one of the jobs was in Castle Bar, to which I had absolutely no connection. Uh, and the, 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 a job that came up in CUH and, and the Mercy and the South Infirmary in, in 1998, 1999, was literally the only job that made sense to me because I'd been a consultant for seven or eight years in the Royal Liverpool which was arguably the biggest A&E department in the UK and possibly Europe at that time uh, and I, I, I you know I, I was doing well. I mean, I was doing very, very well. We had a lot of things going on. We had a two-story building with 100 nurses. We had 30-odd doctors. We regularly have six to ten ambulances outside. And we were, you know, an evolving trauma centre uh, and so forth. So we're, we were doing a lot. And we had, of course, we had a 20-bedded ward for overnight stay. So it was a huge department doing really interesting, you know, innovative things in terms of the, the crowd control I'm talking about, but also things like fixing asthma, fixing collapsed lungs, expediting the care of the heart, heart attack patients, cardiac arrest and so forth forth. So very exciting and I'd been making very good progress but the, the truth was I was desperate to get home. I was about 40 at the time and I'd kind of resolved that if my oldest daughter Kira uh, had reached the end age of 10 that it simply wouldn't be fair to extract her from her, her school uh, in Liverpool uh, and to extract my wife who of course is Scottish mm. uh, and, and uh, t- you know at that stage. So the, the chance came and you know as they say you have to take the opportunity of a lifetime within the lifetime of the opportunity. So I, I went for it and I, I, I know and I've loved Cork for, for many, many years because yeah. I've been coming to Cork since I was, a, it's, you, know, you know, very, very small, particularly to West Cork, which was, this, and coming to the Jazz Festival as a med student in the 70s. So it's, it, it was a part of the country that I loved and it, it, it made some sort of sense, although I have to say I was, I was very anxious about the three hospital business of spinning yeah. around three to be absolutely honest with you, three dilapidated emergency yeah. departments, uh, which were all, you know, needing n- needing new systems. I mean, my, my colleague, my predecessor, my only colleague at the time, Stephen Cusack, had done the best he could. Yeah. But, you know, the, the truth was that uh, when I left Liverpool, there were departments in the UK and Australia which already had 10 or 12 consultants. Yeah. So we had here, we had t- two consultants for the entire city and, of course, the county because we kept an eye on Mallow and Bantry and, yes, and, right. and so forth. Plus, we kept an eye on the, on the ambulances and we had all the politics to do with. We had to negotiate resources. And of course, within a year or two, I was also appointed Director of Postgraduate Medical Education at CUH, where I, I ran the Grand Rounds for quite a while and I was intern tutor and so on. So there's a lot going on there. I get tired even listening to you talk <laughs> about that time. Yes. I, yeah. I, I, yes it, it do, do you think bad. that the burnout that you talk about, and we will talk about, do you think that the burnout started then? No, it began a little bit before that um PJ, because I, I, you know, as I said, we, we people talk about the trolleys. We had trolleys in Liverpool in the early nineties. You know, we had a dozen ambulances queued up outside, just as they are now, all around these islands, queuing up to decant their patients. 
um, and people actually waiting in ambulances until the nurses in the emergency department were ready to take them in because the nurses decided 25 years ago and more recently that it was safer in the back of an ambulance for an elderly party to be with a paramedic or two in the back of their ambulance with all its kit than to be sitting in a, on a corridor, uh, you know, on a small chair, lost in, in the throng of, and of people and, and uh, frightened and, and distressed and all of that, but also genuinely diagnostically wrong because it's very easy to miss yeah. a stoically but very sick patient in distress who's distressed, who's too polite to ask for help as opposed to perhaps the more irate, yeah. uh, intoxicated uh, patient beside him. A keen-eyed paramedic can spot that. Exactly, and has the kit and the experience and the training to deal with the crisis mm. in the back of the ambulance. You have huge respect for paramedics and nurses at every grade, Chris. Every yeah. time you get the opportunity to talk about that respect. Yes, they are the infantry, they are the troops, they are the NCOs, they are increasingly the officers in the health service army and you know I I never hesitate to suggest that when people are talking about fixing inverted commas the Mm. emergency department problem that paramount amongst you know we need more doctors but we need more senior expert nurses and they are they are called advanced nurse practitioners and we need advanced uh, paramedics because these people are basically doctorate level they've done masters very often they have huge experience they've they've lived in the real world and they've treated many many patients which is ultimately what people want mm. they want expertise and experience uh, and you know for example we have advanced nurse practitioners <coughs> in the mercy in CUH and in the urgent care centre in Grona Broher and the work they do is absolutely astonishing it's wonderful and people you, you when you hear about the excellent work done for example in Grona Broher you hear it all the time that people with relatively minor injury go to Grona Broher have a great experience mm-hmm. almost a shockingly uh, impressive and, and welcome experience very often that's, de- that's delivered to them by a registrar which is the sort of lieutenant captain level in the doctors or an advanced nurse practitioner and of course the same applies to CUH uh, and the Mercy mm-hmm. where people like Joe White, Sonia, uh, Anne, Anne uh, 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 and Sheila do such wonderful work. And, and your, your, your two friends, Jason and Adrian, and the work they're able to do at the side of the road, you've written about it yourself. Yeah. Like, and and he, here's a remarkable thing, uh, PJ. Despite all, despite the fact that we have this uh, infamous overcrowding in our emergency departments, Cork has become one of the beacons of progress of sophistication, of systems planning and deployment in these islands and around the world. We have some of the best pre-hospital care now in these islands, courtesy of pioneers like Jason van der Velt, uh, you know, uh, Hugh uh, in, um, in, in Middleton, uh, Connor DC, uh, Adrian uh, and, and, and Joe O'Connor before him. So for, for the last... 15 odd years, 20 years, you know, starting obviously in Middleton uh, with Hugh, uh, you know, we have, uh, we've been developing pre-hospital care and now you have medics going around in these mobile intensive care unit type uh, vehicles that you see, for example, the West Cork Rescue, the West Cork Rescue or the East Cork Mm. Rescue uh, vehicles uh, and you have, uh, you have paramedics then backing them up. So the thing is, I remember about 15, 20 years ago, people were anxious about becoming ill in Yall or Skull or Bantry because of access getting to the big hospital and anxiety about Bantry's provision. But here's the thing. The 
the provision of basic uh, uh, medical care in the hospital boundary is infinitely better than it was. But now you can be on the the, 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 the pier in Ca- at Ca- Castle Townsend or Castletown Bear or Yall uh, or Ballycotton and if you have a cardiac arrest or if you have a, a, a severe accident or you fall down and you're off the pier and you, you hurt yourself... You know, people like Hugh uh, and Jason can be with you uh, within 10, 15, 20 minutes in addition to the paramedic and you can have extraordinarily advanced life-saving care there and then at, at the periphery of the county and, and beyond. So and that's that, a remarkable progress despite the overcrowding we yeah, keep hearing about. And, and that is, you've always talked about the positive and talking up the positive because there's so much of it there in among the overcrowding in among the the difficulties of overcrowding and maybe you have an idea how we solve that, I'll come back to it but I want to talk about about burnout Chris because first of all you suffered from it uh, badly very badly, I would suggest both mentally and physically but also um, we have a massive shortage of consultants and a massive shortage of doctors and nurses at all grades are we looked on? Is Ireland looked on as something of a of a burnout black spot? I suspect that it is, PJ. Um, but you know, I also worry about a, a, a phrase, an idea that I've coined myself again, slightly ironically, because without, without black humour, we're we're, we're, mm. we're stuffed. But you know, I talk I talk about a thing called pre-traumatic stress reaction. Yeah. In other words, we have so many doctors leaving the service, leaving the island or not returning to the public service because they anticipate burnout so intensely. And, you know, I'd point out that there are a lot of doctors and nurses who are not so burnt out, you know, and like everything in life, there is a spectrum. There is a continuum within the health service from, say, the community, the district nursing, uh, right through to the intensive care, pre-hospital, you know, war zone type type scenario and every kind of situation in between. And one of the great things about medicine is that there are dozens of specialties. Mm. Uh, into which you can find yourself fitting very, very nicely. Now, it may take a few years before you recognise what specialty is for you. You know, you may be a laboratory type person. You may be a researcher in the labor, uh, you know, in the university. You may be an, a, an excitement junkie, like like a, many an emergency physician, or you may be somebody who likes the the the, the, the neat and tidy regularity of the operating theatre or or the wards. So there's a place, a niche for for everybody. And I think it's the mismatch between you, your personality, your 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 attributes and aptitudes, and where you find yourself ending up that I think is at the root of of burnout. And remember. Burnout is an occupational disease or a dis-ease, as, mm. I, as, I, as I like to call it. You know, you know, to break down the words, dis-ease. You know, you're you're not you're at you're not at you're not comfortable. And the thing is, I'm and I'm and I'm giving a talk in Galway uh, n- next week at a, at a conference, and it's about pleasure and why medics need to keep a, a very close eye on pleasure because for me the red flag that uh, that tells you you're a at grave risk of burnout is when you stop having pleasure in all the things which gave you pleasure before. Mm. So when you no longer enjoy watching the Reds or the Whites uh, playing football, when you no longer enjoy going to the pub to have a, a few pints with the lads, when you no longer enjoy the golf or the tennis or the cycling trip on a Sunday morning, when you no longer enjoy the company of colleagues or most, most importantly and severely and seriously, when you no longer enjoy 
the reinsurances and the sheer pleasure of being met at the door by your own kids and your dog and, of course, above all, your wife. And when you're endlessly, you know, uh, moaning to yourself, most of all, about how you're not enjoying life, that's a real red flag. And that, to me, means take stock. Maybe take time out, but take stock. And that happened to me in the late 90s when I was dealing with a myself and Una Geary, one of the, the great emergency physicians in Ireland who, who trained with me in Liverpool and is now back at St. James's. But she and I dealt with 48 shootings in, 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 a, in a hurry in Liverpool. So, you know, the Kinahan-Hutch thing. Mm. We had that, uh, the, the Ungi fitzgibbon Phillips uh, feud in, in Liverpool where we had... We dealt with 48 shootings and very often the, the people would be dumped at the door of the emergency department without any warning or they'd be shot in a pub or whatever and you just pick up, pick them up accidentally in the emergency department or in, in, in the triage at the door of the emergency department and, and so on and they usually arrived without warning. So, you know, when a shooting arrives, the, the, the department is suddenly, you know, you have a swarm of armed SWAT team uh, police, you have snipers on the pub roof opposite the hospital, uh, you have the doors of the of the recess room uh, barricaded and locked and, and securely guarded because you may have the gang members trying to get into the recess room where you're working on the, on the latest shooting victim. Uh, everything else has to stop, even if there's a, a, a trolleys as far as the eye can see full of elderly, distressed people, cardiacal also, everything has to stop for the, for the shooting victim. So we had so much of that, plus of course all the usual stuff in, in a city which was f- tormenting by poverty uh, and and deprivation and and so on in, in the early nineties. I mean, th- thankfully, Liverpool is a wonderful, bustling, prosperous city mm. now. But back then, it was on its uppers. You know, the early nineties yeah. and so on. So you know, the burnout was creeping up. Then I was working every second. You know, er, you know, I was working eighty, ninety, hundred hours a week, even at the age of, of you know, my late thirties, and I'm trying to rear a kid, rear children, and and you know, and I, I wasn't earning very much. So I was cycling to work and getting the bus yeah. and so on. Probably not sleeping. Not very sleeping. Well, called in at two in the morning three in the morning, yeah. five in the morning, and so on. So it, 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 that's certainly when the burnout was beginning. There's a, there's a survey has come out, reading it this morning, it says about half of all the UK hospital doctors and nurses that they surveyed have had near accidents or experienced near misses while driving home. Like, in the career that you had and the way that it developed, I'd say getting enough sleep. When you look back on it now, Chris, you, had, you weren't getting enough sleep for years. Correct. And, um, or enough decent sleep when you got sleep. Yes, and uh, of course it's only recently that we're realising that a lack of sleep is, hello, carcinogenic. You know, who knew? It's not, it's not just very bad for your circadian rhythm. It's not just very bad for stress. It's not just very bad for making you cantankerous and crabby and anxious, you know, the, the morning after a, a disturbed night's sleep, you know, and that you take that into work with you, although you try not to, uh, or you, you take it uh, into your family life on, on, a, on your occasional day off. So yes, uh, sleep deprivation sadly is, is a feature uh, of, of, of life as a, an emergency physician or an anaesthetist or a surgeon or a radiologist. And that's one of the reasons why I think that there is a natural trajectory, I think, in medicine and nursing, at least I think there should be, where younger people do more nights and more f- f- patient-facing stuff, you know, that the exciting stuff. And as you get older, perhaps after the age of 55, that you stop doing nights. I think that's something to greatly to be desired. 
desired, uh, both in, uh, having experienced that. And also medically, I think, you know, the chronic sleep deprivation and deep sleep disturbance is much harder to a- accommodate when you're in your mid to late 50s. Ooh. And it's something that they already practice in the UK. They, you know, people who are older than 55 don't do yeah. so-called on-call and they do sort of slightly less intense things. And I think that makes eminent sense. And you know what? I'm absolutely convinced that it would keep more older doctors in. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would have kept working forever if they had been able to calibrate, down-calibrate the intensity of my work. I offered to work, you know, as an ambulatory doctor, as a, as a ward doctor, as a clinic doctor, all those many other things that the emergency department does. But the system simply didn't have the wherewithal to yeah. give me that, that particular type of job. Is it possible? Because from as long ago as myself the time when I might have wanted to be a doctor many years ago and people are still going into it now when you qualify you're going into this maelstrom where sleep is as precious as the next wage or the next meal and it's for how long is there a way to restructure the profession Chris that that doesn't happen that we actually get a a proper working week for young graduating doctors because they can get it in Australia can't they yes there, of course, there is uh, PJ. Uh, you know, here, here's the thing: in the forty years since I qualified, uh, medicine, the the, uh, the capacity of medicine to cure, fix, and alleviate above all to uh, to relieve distress is infinitely greater than it, than it used to be uh, in, in the early eighties. And I'm very proud of the progress that my generation uh, contributed to. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Medicine, I'm still absolutely fascinated and deeply in love with with medicine. It's a magnificent career. It's a magnificent uh, aspect of of, of human life and, and being human. And... I've said this to politicians discreetly in the past, the most senior politicians you can imagine. I said the one point of most pathology in the health service in this country and in the UK is in the human resource management uh, point in the chain. We need to maybe have a summit. We need to maybe have a people's citizens assembly even to look at the way we treat our doctors and nurses and paramedics and the ancillary professions and see what can be done to accommodate, for example, the science of sleep. We now know that the circadian rhythm cannot be circumvented. We now know that if you constantly pretend to yourself that your body clock says, sleep, it's dark, sleep. And if we keep ignoring that, that we are, you know, we are stocking up terrible problems for our health and our mental health, mm. particularly uh, for, in, in, for, for, for the years to come. And catnapping in a sluice room is not the solution, it, not, it never was. It, no, it, it, it may help a tiny bit temporarily, but the truth is that we need to have a long look at the health and well-being of doctors and nurses over the entire course of their careers and see what it is that must be done to help. Mm. Chris, 
you never fell out of love with being a doctor, did you? No, no, I no. Still, I'm still very much in love and I'm still very proud and grateful, uh, PJ, to have become a doctor. I, 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 mean, I wrote recently, no one was more surprised than myself, to paraphrase Flan O'Brien, than myself as the young Dr. Luke in 1982. I was astonished because I was... I was a chancer, I was a, a messer. I, I you mean, enjoyed I, college. I enjoyed life. I mean, I was a terrible messer. My, my, my daughter is convinced, my, I have three daughters, and number two is my, is, my, is my kind of ideas guru. She's convinced that I have ADHD, you know. <laughs> and it may be that that's what explained my, my, my love of medicine, the, the emergency medicine, the ever-changing diversity and quick change and so on, the sort of cinema uh, mm-hmm. effect that you have when you're in it. But, you know, on the other hand, I, I started life in an orphanage, I had terrible insecurity in terms of separation anxiety and my mother wasn't around an You're awful very lot. very hard on yourself. Go yeah, but you know, uh, I, I, I think my, my, the, the greatest blessing I had was I, I, I craved affection and love. And I think I appreciate affection and love and kindness as much as anybody and I turned that upside down to try and deploy affection and kindness and, and love towards my patients. And the only achievement that I would like to be remembered for is having been affectionate and perhaps kind and done my bet, best to make people feel better when they left an emergency department, either in either direction, going in or out. And I always say that the metric of a good consultation is when the patient comes in grimacing, pale, distressed and leaves pink-faced, smiling and grateful. They, those are the basic, simple, perennial yeah. metrics happiness of a really good consultation. And happiness, as I say, is the absence of pain. And if you can do your bit to relieve pain, whether it's spiritual or physical or mental, you've done what you're supposed to be doing. One last one, Chris. Um, and after 40 years as a doctor and in your early 60s now and I think your daughter's gone into the profession and you've four kids and you're settled and you live here in Cork you seem to me to be a happy man who are your heroes Chris Luke? Oh God that's a difficult one that really is difficult my medical heroes would be Sister Lucy O'Brien the famous missionary surgeon in Monzi in South Zambia who inspired me uh, that an enormous amount could be done with relatively little resources. There, I saw ecological medicine in practice there. You know, the surgical dra- uh, the- drapes <clears throat> spread over the, 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 the hedgerows outside the hospital to be irradiated and sterilised by the sunlight. I saw latex gloves being used and reused and reused. The parsimony, the, the, the frugality. Um, Professor Nilo Higgins, who was a, a surgeon who took an interest in me and took a shine to me when I was a medical student in Vincent's and we had some adventures together and he came after me when I was a consultant and put, laid the hand on me and got me to do all sorts of, you know, uh, 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 tasks and jobs and favours and many a poison chalice, but I'm incredibly grateful to him and he spoke in my, the launch of my book in the Royal College of Physicians. He wonderfully wrote a poem. Um, people like George Angus uh, Lee, in, in the surgeon, the county surgeon in, in, in Wexford, Anthony Clare, the, 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 the psychiatrist who I admired hugely as both a media man and as a psychiatrist who I saw mm. occasionally in, in, in the throes of my, my burnout. There, there are so many, you know, Lawrence Jaffe, before the Four Beatles, you know, you name <laughs> it. But, but above all, my mother. Yeah, um, and I know she, uh, she passed away only a couple of years ago. Yeah. 
uh, a single woman, unmarried, gave birth to me at the age of 40 in the, 90, in the end of the 1950s, which was no mean feat in deeply Catholic Ireland, uh, and was an extraordinarily resourceful woman, extraordinarily bright. She didn't go to college, but if she had, I'm certain she would have been professorial or president. She was a remarkable woman, and her influence continues in her, in her children, in her, in her son and in her grandchildren, and I owe her a remarkable... As I do... And I mustn't forget this to my wonderful wife, Victoria. Chris, for the thousands of families that uh, have members alive and well and healthy because of your intervention and because of those two hands that you're given, thank you for what you've done. Thank you, PJ. It's been an honour. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM. Yeah, we had a... a, a WhatsApp voice message on the Leaving Search Well. I'll get to it in a while, not just now. Um, thanks again to Chris Luke, a remarkable man, a remarkable guy indeed. And uh, I could have spent the morning talking to Chris, but we, we need to move on. 0818 96 96 96. The Defence Force is, uh, Defence Forces have launched a major campaign looking for 3,000 new recruits. Now, that is no mean feat. If any factory or any uh, multinational came to town and said they wanted 3,000 new staff, we'd say that's an enormous job boost for the city and the county. This is a recruitment drive launched by Defence Minister Simon Coveney and the Defence Forces Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy. It was launched only in the last couple of weeks. And we're going to talk about it a while. I... Go first to Brian McCarthy, who is a petty officer, but he's also on the recruitment team. Um, 3,000 personnel, Brian, that's a lot of jobs going, a lot of people needed. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, um, thanks for the introduction there. Yeah, um, again, Defence Forces in Ireland um, increasing their size, specifically in the Navy here with bigger ships um, that we're taking on. We need more people to man them, really, um, and fulfil our role. Uh, to defence of the state, yeah. Yeah, because we, we would be, technically we would have been short-staffed, would we not, for the last while? Um, yeah, that's true. Um, numbers have dropped off um, the last little bit, different reasons for that. Um, so again, we're we're increasing in size anyway, so we're looking for we're replacing those that have left and a new intake of um, personnel for the increase of size in the, the Irish Navy. So what grades are you seeking? Is it everyone from cadet Private, right through? Exactly, yeah. So there's two forms um, of joining the Navy with general enlistment, which would be that of a recruit, which I would have joined as many years ago, and that of a cadet as well. And the cadetship is currently ongoing, and that's closing Sunday night at 23.59. And if anyone wants to rush in an application mm-hmm. for that, the general enlistment and recruitment, that's ongoing. That'll be ongoing uh, throughout the year. Which raises an obvious question, Brian. What's the difference between a recruit and a cadet? So a cadet, um, a cadet, you're ultimately after two years of training um, in a round, you will qualify as an ensign and you'll go through um, that of an officer rank. For a recruit, um, you go through a rank of um, an able rate, be it an able mech, seaman, comms or logistical branch and you'll come to the rank then of a non-commissioned officer. So you've kind of two paths there. Um, much like any industry, really, um, you have people giving orders and people following up to a certain level. That's how we look at it here. 
Right, right. And are there different entry requirements then for cadet versus recruit? So um, just on an educational side is um, the only difference. So I suppose the easiest thing is for me to go through. Um, for that of a recruit, there's no formal educational requirement. And there's an age requirement between the ages of 18 and under 27. Um, and you progress from that then. Um, you have to be either an Irish or EU national also. Um, for that of a cadet, um, there is an educational requirement. Uh, which is basically a pass leaving cert, um, and the ages are slightly less. It's between 18 and under 26 for eligibility there. See, I see you've got some people there with you who are in training at the moment, and maybe we could have a chat with them. I have indeed, Jack. Uh, I've Connor and Aideen here with me, and I pass you over to Aideen there now. We'll go to, we'll go to Connor first, I'd say. Um, this is Connor Kerwin. Um, training yeah. currently, Connor, in the, in the gunnery school, and you've completed recruit training. So tell me about what that's been like. Well, recruit training is uh, very robust, intense. Uh, it starts off with a week induction, where you basically get told what's going to happen and get you ready to start recruits. Then you go into your marching phase, your gun, your uh, gun drill, and that type of thing, and then. You're going to your basic military training, which is some people's favourite part, but uh, my favourite part would have been the MIO. What's that? Which is basically the iron boardings. So you go training basically with the HNK, which is the handgun that the Navy uses. You train with that on a yard that's basically uh, built like a ship. So you do practices with your fellow recruits, mm. training and practicing basically arm boardings. And was defence forcing forces always something you wanted to do? Um, I'd say I, I always wanted a different job. Like I didn't really want a nine to five. Uh, I kind of wanted a bit of a challenge and I was working one day and I actually heard on the radio an advertisement for the defence forces and uh, that kind of, it was talking about challenging, rewarding career and I said to myself, that sounds like something I'd be interested in and so at that stage, it was between the Army and the Navy. Right. And uh, my granddad was in the Army, so I said to myself, why don't I just do something different and try the Navy? So I think I'd find it interesting, and yeah. I did. So, so whereabouts are you now? You've come through your recruit training. Yeah, I've come through recruit training, and I've done six weeks of branch training, which was basic seamanship and um, uh like learning knots and splices and stuff, yeah, sure. just things you'll be doing out, out at sea, like so you're yeah. learning the basics until you go out. And when will you be off to sea or have you been to sea yet? Uh, I've been to sea in one for a week in recruits for a sea week, where basically you go out and you shadow a seaman, whatever, well, whatever, you, you, do, you do all the branches, but I wanted to be a seaman, so I was doing mostly seaman work, shadowing the seaman and watching what they're doing, because that's what you're going to be doing when you eventually get out to sea. Right. So, yeah, we did a week there and then I've done, I'm, I'm going out to, to sea in, well, I'm finished branch training in six weeks after six weeks gunnery. So I'll be going out to sea after that. Right. And you're looking forward to getting out there on the water full time? Ah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's great crack out there. Like I've been out there for a week and like you just make friends with everyone on the ship, like the best friends you'll probably make. Like Yeah. Yeah. What age are you, Connor? I'm 20. You're 20. So exciting times ahead for you. Pass me over there to Aideen. Uh, this is Aideen O'Reardon. Aideen, you're, you're in training at the moment. Uh, tell me a bit about your training. Good morning. 
Good morning, how are you? Um, yeah, so I finished uh, my recruit training in February and I'm in my medics training at the moment. Okay. Um, so there's a few different stages in your medics training. Um, it's divided into three parts. So there's the civilian qualification, which would be your EMT training. Um, so that would be a few months long. And then you do your part two, which is occupational health. Um, you do that study that in UCD or UCC. And then you've got your part three, which is your military side of the medic training. Um, so I would have came in with this, the civilian side done already. But uh, so the military side of the medics training is completely new to me. So I just completed that up in the Cura with the army, right. actually, because they were doing a medics course. What, what, what does, that, um, what so does that involve? Military medical training? What does that involve? Um, I suppose it's sort of like the movies where you're dealing with gunshot wounds and things like that. <laughs> yeah. So obviously in a civilian setting, you wouldn't be equipped to um, deal with things like that in a, in a, in a medic yeah. setting. So, um, so yeah. you're yeah, going to be, you're like going to be a military paramedic effectively is what you'll be, isn't it, Aideen? Is that to, is that it, to put yeah, a layman's it's, term on it? It's, um, yeah, so the civilian name for it would be an EMT. So that's an emergency medical technician, okay. which would be an amb- ambulance practitioner. Yeah. Um, but now, so I've got the qualification of a combat medical technician on top of that. Wow. Which, so that would be additional training as well that I've received since joining the Navy, which is fantastic. So with those qualifications then under your belt, where are you likely to be posted? Um, so I'm going getting posted now on Monday coming onto a ship. Um, so each one of the ships in the Naval Service have one medic. So they're called sick bay attendants. So you've got one medic per ship. So obviously you've got a lot of responsibility in that sense because you're looking after the crew. Um, however many will be on the ship at the time. Um, so I'll be doing my two-year rotation at sea, just like everybody else. Um, so we're going out on the patrols with everyone. Nice. Exciting times? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. Same question as I asked yeah. Connor. Was the Defence Forces always something you wanted to do? Um, it's probably something that was always in, in the back of my head. I, since I was younger, I was in scouts and I was really into the outdoors. Um, I do a lot of uh, water sports and things like that. Mm. So the same idea, Army versus Navy was the question, but I definitely like being out in the water on a nice nice sunny day. Yeah. <laughs> it's got a great view. Yeah. Is, um, the, is so, the fitness uh, and staying fit murderously hard? Because you know why I ask you this now, Aideen? Because we're all just mm-hmm. out of breath just to watch in Hell Week. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it really hard to keep fit for all this? Well, I suppose when you're going through recruit training, you, you build up a, a really good level of fitness because you're doing a lot of exercise regularly. And then after that, it is mainly up to yourself to keep on top of it. But like there's gyms provided on base here on the naval base, as well as on each of the ships, there's there's gyms that you can use. So you can't go out for a big long run because you're at sea, but there's treadmills and everything and there's weights. So you can keep on top of your own training. And, you know, so it's, it wouldn't be that, that difficult at all. I suppose yeah. if you're in the Navy, you've got an interest in yeah. keeping yourself fit and healthy as well. So... No, I'd say it's actually probably easier because you can yeah. kind of incorporate it into your daily routine here and it's it's encouraged to do that. As, um, as a, so as a really woman venturing into this career, are there many are there many young women at, at, at the same position as you are now ready to head off to sea? There is, absolutely. And I'm really fortunate. So I was in recruits um, for 22 weeks with eight other females. There was eight of them in my class. And like, so it was like having eight new sisters. And next week when I'm going to see two of the people from my, two of the girls from my recruit class are, are on the same ship as me. And there's going to be another three females on that ship as well. So there, there's a good few of us floating around. We're, we're going to take over the place. All right, I'm not saying that's the plan. <laughs> and, and is there any friend yet, as it were, uh, who you've said, come on, give this a shot, it's great? 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, I've tried to rope in a few of my friends. <laughs> yeah. There's people off doing other jobs and they say, ah, oh, no, no, you still have time to, to give it a go. Definitely. All right. Listen. Oh, I'd, I'd 100%. I've recommended it to all of my friends. The it's best. been like the craziest but best few months of my life so far. I've, like I've done a few different jobs before this, but this is definitely a career for life. Like I can see that already. Well, here's hoping that, that it's a long yeah. and a, a rewarding career for you both, Aideen and Connor. Put me back on there briefly to Brian so I can finish up with <laughs> you. <laughs> Hi. Yeah, Brian, their, their, their enthusiasm is infectious. Just before uh, we wrap up with you, remind people again the, the closing dates and how to begin the process. Yeah, so the closing date for the cadetship competition is this coming Sunday, the 12th at 2359. And for general enlistment, um, we're recruiting all year round um, for both like Aideen and Connor that you've listened to there. So if we sparked an interest with anyone um, to join us, it's www.military.ie. That would bring it to the website. And um, from there, it's just simple as click online, apply online. And um, the process of going through it, and um, there's a psychometric test which you can practice online. And um, once your details are taken, you'll be sent a link um, and you can you can work on your, your actual test then. Um, but it's advised to practice uh, before doing it. There's a fitness test. Um, and again, fitness was mentioned there. It's key to us. Um, so for males and females, um, there's 20 push-ups in a minute, 20 sit-ups in a minute. And there's a 2.4 kilometer run for males to be completed in 11 minutes 40 and for females in 13 minutes 10. Mm. Um, on completion of that, there's an interview, a medical, um, and once you're awarded clearance, then you're then awarded a place in a recruit class. So that's okay. kind of the process involved in it. Okay, and best of luck to everybody. Petty Officer Brian McCarthy, part of the recruitment team, and Aideen O'Reardon and Connor Kerwin, both uh, recent recruits, looking forward to getting stuck in. And uh, congratulations to you both and good luck in your futures. Access all areas on Cork's 96FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's entertainment. Two great shows coming up at Cypress Avenue this week include Just Mustard tonight at 7pm with support from Cork's Elaine Malone and Gracie Petrie who plays the venue on Friday night. Access all areas. Join Rory's stories for an intimate evening of comedy and honest conversations with some well-known friends as Rory brings his new live show to Cork on September. September 25th. Rory plays one night only at the Opera House with tickets on sale now. Access All Areas. You can contact us here at Access All Areas if you have a show, play, exhibition or gig coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us on aaa at 96fm.ie. Access All Areas. With Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialists in sound this summer. On Cork's 96FM. Foot Solutions with us this week, celebrating 15 years in Cork. Free your feet and the rest will follow. And to mark their very special occasion down there on Grand Parade, I have a €150 Foot Solutions gift card to give you every day this week. It's an event that happened in the past 15 years and I want you to tell me what the event is. Now, you'll know who these lads are, but I want you to tell me what they're talking about. What are they talking about? Now, a lot of people mentioning their sport, that's kind of not enough. I'd like to know what specific element of their sport, to do with their sport, are they talking about? Give this a go again. Simple enough, You're really. You're taking yeah. too complex, really. <laughs> no. Just eat it, be as fast as you can yeah. go. Start to finish. Yeah. Close your eyes and pull like <laughs> down. All right. So, their name, or not, you don't need to know their name, but your name 
and what they're talking about, please. 2083 396 96 96. Now, back to the Leaving Search. We started this morning by mentioning everybody at starting Leaving Search and starting Junior Search this morning. We talked to Donna Leary at the Life Centre about look, it's only an exam, it doesn't actually define you. We've got to come to terms with that. We've got to look back and say, well, just because it was okay for us, it's not okay for the new generation. Change is needed. We need to replace the Leaving Search with something that actually works and is actually practical and that actually makes sense in 2022. We had a WhatsApp voice note from Gosha. Good morning, PJ. Uh, this is Gosha here uh, from y'all. Um, I'm a mother of a girl who is starting her living search uh, exams today, and I was just listening to you what you just said. And believe me or not, she, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night. I saw a little light in her room. I went downstairs. She was so stressed over the exams and oh my god you actually repeated what i said to her it is only exam and as you said they can they can be whatever they want whoever they want in their lives and those exams are just exams i have been educating myself for my whole life and mostly of education i got in college and courses it was after i was 30 years old and nobody ever asked me for the living cert and results oh i wish all the students very good day today i don't wish them good luck because whatever they do they do their best and and it is just an exam so yeah i actually said to her what you did a minute ago and she was fine she went to sleep happy out and woke up with a smile this morning. So, that's from me. Bye, PJ. Take care. Thank you, Gosha, for that. That's lovely. Uh, Just deliver that message. It's just an exam. It really isn't as important as anyone around you is telling you. Uh, It will pass, and whatever happens will happen, and and don't make it define you, because, by goodness me, lads, if I was defined by my leaving cert... (laughs) <laughs> Let's not even go there. 0818 96 96 96. Pete has a series of questions that are coming from the discussion on minimum pricing of alcohol. And he asks, did the sugar tax stop obesity? Did the duty on cigarettes cut smoking-related illness? Did carbon tax change people's behaviour? Did property tax increase the quality of local services? Did the USC plug the hole in the public finances? Thanks, Pete. And Kevin says, in the same way as carbon taxes don't encourage people, don't discourage people from driving, minimum pricing has no effect on people's drinking. It's a cash grab, nothing more. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast, or on 96FM.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 0818 Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, a reminder to you, of course, we've all our festivals back this year. 
We missed them so much in 2020 and 2021 with no marquee and no Musgrave Park and no big concerts down the park. They're all back this year and there's festivals all over the country for the, the summer of 2022 and good to see it. And to celebrate that, Cork's 96th exclusive online station, the Back Garden Festival, is back. It's all we had for the last two summers, so we decided to bring it back this year, streaming the biggest hits from the summer's headline acts with Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialist in sound this summer. You can listen right now on our app or go to 96fm.ie. You'll find it, open up the app and you'll find the little button there and you're with the best of the music from the festival artists of 2022 around not just Cork, but around the country. 0818969696 A lot of love in the room for Chris Luke Mary says, great Chris Luke interview What a lovely, humble man His mother was a lady And he spoke very highly of her As I said, I could have sat there chatting with Chris For the rest of the day uh, He's a great, engaging conversationalist And I've always loved uh, chatting with him uh, Over the years 40 years in medicine, eh? I wonder what the rest of us will do when we're 40 years in our jobs. Of course, that's millions of years away. Now, that, that, if only you knew. 0818 96 96 96. Today is World Oceans Day. Um, and it's a day officially designated, as it were, by the United Nations to, to celebrate our oceans and to talk about our oceans and to raise awareness of the importance of the role oceans play in our everyday life. And it has a theme every year and uh, today's theme is about sustaining and and recognising the importance of those oceans. And to mark the occasion, I've been speaking to uh, where is my page gone? Sorry, I can't move it. Yes, John Armstrong. Speaking with John Armstrong. John is from Cork Nature Network. Uh, We spoke about the oceans and what John feels are the key issues regarding World Oceans Day. So John, the theme of World Oceans Day 2022 is revitalization, collective action for our oceans. Like if I take a drive and look at the beautiful oceans that are only 10 or 15 kilometers away from Cork City, I might be codded into thinking our oceans are just fine, thank you very much, but they're not. No, our oceans are really going through quite a difficult time for it at the moment. Um, World Oceans Day, can, the UN have put out a, a few figures about this, and it's kind of first like 90% of all of the big fish stocks around the world are in decline. Um, we've already lost about 50% of our coral reefs. And as well, to think about 50% of all of our oxygen actually comes from the seas and the oceans. So they're exceptionally important to us, and they're kind of in quite a bit of a difficult time for that at the moment. In what way are, the, are they struggling in particular in, in Ireland, say, or around Ireland? So from, a, from an Irish context, a lot of it has to do actually with um, overfishing. So overfishing would be um, a big issue. Um, a lot of our fish stocks are fished more above, let's say, what scientifically say they should. And then that can have huge impacts and eventually fish stocks can collapse so we can lose the fish entirely. So that would kind of be one of the, would be quite a big issue. Um, I think another thing we often don't think about is kind of how we ourselves can impact upon it. Um, let's say kind of like plastic waste and things like that. Mm. 
Um, we only ever think about, you know, ocean issues when we're at the coast, but we never think about our rivers and how they're kind of like lifelines and kind of the arteries of our, of really of the sea running inland. And so anything that goes into the water in a town, the centre of the country, will eventually get into the sea eventually. Yeah. So that's the thing I think we need to think about is that kind of every single thing that gets into our rivers gets into the sea at the very end of it all. Um, in a lot, around a lot of the world, a lot of the plastic gets into the river, actually get into the seas from rivers. Although we do need to take into account that the vast majority of plastic in the oceans is kind of discarded fishing nets. Um, is it really? Which, yeah. Yes, they, they can be a big, big issue. Hmm. Like I guess when people start talking about fishing in an Irish context, John, you know, there is a whole industry sustaining thousands of jobs and families off our coasts and it's a valuable industry. So there's a balance to be struck. We can, we can look at something like overfishing, but we got to recognise the importance of our fishing industry too, don't we? Almost definitely. And I think this is where the differentiation must be made. There's a very huge difference to, let's say, our inland fishing fleets. That would be the vast majority of our fishers who'd be fishing kind of along the coasts of the coast stocks and the giant super trawlers that are coming in along our deep ocean waters. Again, they're two completely different issues. The super trawlers are the ones that are causing the vast, vast, vast majority of the issues. Well, the small guy going off out of Union Hall with his three or four crew to sustain mm. his family and, and their families and, and whatever, like, he or she has absolutely no hope against something half the size of the Titanic, which is hundreds of, hundreds of miles out, soaking up the stock before it gets to him. It, it's a sad fact, and I think as well there's been it's been spoken about more as well the kind of the idea of bycatch and how a lot of the fishing problems actually come from the fact that let's say the fish you're looking for you haven't caught it, you've caught another fish um, that may not be as valuable. And then sometimes that's actually, or a lot of time, it's just dumped overboard because, again, it, it may not sell for as much. And so then you have fish that's been taken out of the water that is never actually even being used. Um, I think the UN estimated recently that 35% of all fish, crustaceans, mollusks are wasted before they actually even get to people's dinner tables. I remember attending protests a number of years ago here in the city where people came up in their trawlers and said, look at that, that's beautiful fish, tasty, nutritious fish, and I have to throw it back because it's not what I'm supposed to be catching. Like That's absolute nonsense because then you're, you're throwing waste into the sea, are you not? It is, yes. It, it's, 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 it's completely silly. We dump back thousands of tons of oysters and thousands of tons of salmon every year. I mean, surely there's another use for that somewhere. There must be, yes. Um, it is a it is a, a big big issue, um, and I think it's becoming more. So I think we need to think about it more and more as um, we think now with climate change and how let's say our oceans are changing and how a lot of fish yeah. only like to live in let's say a certain temperature range. So if that temperature range changes, then it becomes difficult for them. Yeah. And then if we're overfishing them at a time when it's even difficult for them, just generally, we're kind of it's a double whammy of problems. The pressure is hitting them. Um, and so that's why I think even now we need to be looking after our fish and looking after our marine environments even more. There's a statistic that I came across, and I, I looked at it twice, that the ocean contains 94% of all wildlife on the planet. Yes, of all biodiversity. 
by far. If no other message comes to us on Oceans Day, that we have to protect the oceans to protect that huge amount of biodiversity and, and wildlife. I think to, to add even to that as well is that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our deep oceans. Only about 1% to 2% of our deep oceans have been mapped. So we really don't even know what we're losing and even what we have to lose. So I think that's another thing that really needs to be said. That And again, for the key message, I think, again, 50% of all of our oxygen comes from the sea. Um, again, as you've said, over 90% of the biodiversity. So it is incredibly vital for us to survive. Like um, 70, our, the planet is covered 70% in ocean. So kind of, we call it, the, it really is the blue planet. Like mm. we should be thinking more about the, the water as being the vast majority of us. Also, we're an island. Like every single one of us can be within the, to the water in, let's say, two hours, three hours, even if you're in the very, very centre of the country. And that's very rare in the world. We really are an island nation. We should be looking after oceans as Mm. if we are an island nation. (laughs) I do realise there's a lot of doom and gloom around, and that is kind of sometimes the difficulty when you are looking at issues like this. But I think as well we should realise and take away how beautiful our oceans are, how magnificent biodiversity we have. We have whales, we have dolphins, um, we have incredible seabirds, um, poppins, hittiwakes. We should really look as well towards the beauty, even if you go down onto the seashore and you can find crabs and find starfish and you can find just a sheer amount of wonder and beauty, I think. So that's, I think, another thing we should really look towards is kind of the sheer beauty of biodiversity that we do have all around us. Yeah. John, thanks for speaking with me today. Good to hear from you. Thank you very much for having me. That is John Armstrong from the Cork Nature Network uh, speaking to me about World Ocean Day, which is today. And just remember the importance of the ocean, how lucky we are to have them, A, so close to us here in Cork City, but how precious they are. And there's things going on under the water that should be worrying for all of us. Thank you, John. 0818-969696. The report in the news about thuggery on our streets. And I hear uh, Councillor Ken O'Flynn talking about how certain parts of the city are now a, or seen as by some, as a no-go area. Uh, Pat wants to know, are there anyone watching the CCTV in Anglesey Street taking note of how much fighting is going on in the city? Can they not employ someone to do that? It's taking 12 months to charge some people as well. It's ridiculous. Well, there's two separate things going on there, Pat, but you're you're not wrong. Um, There is CCTV. It it is constantly monitored, and the guards do get where they're supposed to be as quickly as they possibly can. But as we said before, there's not enough of them, but still they go in. John says, we need a directly elected Lord Mayor. All we have now is a ceremonial role. It's like arranging deck chairs for the political parties. Let's get a Lord Mayor with teeth that can demand more Garda boots on the street. We are short of guards, John, very short of guards. Um, But I'm not too sure the Lord Mayor has any power to get more of them for us. The only person with the power to get us more guards, I would suggest, is the Minister for Justice 
and or the Garda Commissioner between them. But thank you. 0818 96 96 96. New television show, new tourism show about Ireland is to air on one of the biggest networks in America. I'll be talking to the man behind it next. Oldies and Irish on Cork's 96 FM is the big Sunday show on your radio. Turn it up and take it easy with the best music mix for your Sunday morning. morning. Welcome along to the programme. Lovely to be with you on a Sunday morning. Oldies and Irish with Derry O'Callaghan. Sundays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. With Hidden Hearing, tuning you in so you don't miss a thing. And we've been doing it for over 30 years. Hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96FM. One of the biggest networks in America, and it's a network that we might not necessarily acknowledge here is PBS um, because it's public broadcasting from America and we don't, I think, realise just how big it is. And Ireland is about to be showcased in a new programme called Hidden Ireland on PBS. It'll air during prime time, which means it'll be beamed directly into millions of households across the United States on PBS. It'll be hosted and presented by Peter Greenberg, who joins me now. Peter, good morning. And good morning to you, sir. Good to have you with us on the Opinion Line. Just for listeners who mightn't be overly familiar, as they say, Peter, with the reach of PBS, how big is this? Well, it's as big as every other network because it's a free network. It's public television has been on the air for over 70 years. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's got quality programming. You may remember shows like uh, Downton Abbey. Yes. I mean, that's PBS as well. Uh, but the good news about PBS is the audience, uh, they love to travel. Many, most of them have passports. They use them. They're highly educated. Uh, they, they want me to tell them, of course, my mandate from the audience is to tell them something they didn't know. So for this show, which is part of our hidden series, uh, we have a certain mandate, and the mandate is, and I, th- I hope you'll appreciate it, no gift shop, no tour buses, no TripAdvisor logos, uh, no lines, uh, forget the brochures and the guidebooks. Let's go to places and experiences that are not only amazing, fascinating, um, and allow a deep immersion, but are accessible to the audience. And that's what we do in every one of our shows. I love it because we know our country and we love our country and we know all the things that people come to see. But we also know ourselves that there's lots of things people never come to see because they're not taken there. And those are the things you want to discover. Is that it? Well, that's part of it because there's also the things that you think you need to see. You know, how many thousands of people every day go to the Cliffs of Moher, right? And we're not telling people not to go. We're going to show them a different way to go. And uh, so there's a, di- a different way to see something. It, for example, if I, I'm in Paris right now, and if I were going to show you hidden Paris, the last thing you'd expect me to talk about is the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. But, but what if I know the guy who goes in there at 8 o'clock at night and lights it up and you can go in there with him? Aha, different way to see it. So it's a mix that we have between the iconic destinations and experiences and the unknown and the hidden ones. And that's hopefully what we're going to be doing in Hidden Ireland. So how long will you be spending here? I mean, have you been filming here already? Oh, yeah. We've, we've been filming over a number of days. Uh, in fact, if you actually add the scouting trips, the advanced trips, the research trips, and the filming, well over a month. 
Um, we just finished filming uh, a week ago today, as a matter of fact, in uh, in Dublin. And uh, I'm actually speaking to you now from Paris yeah. on my way to Lisbon. Uh, this show, I should not get everybody's hopes up that it's going to air tomorrow because it's not. Mm. A lot of work goes into it. And so we're hoping to get it on the air February, March of next year. Uh, but what's one of, guess what? Maybe coinciding with a certain holiday you celebrate. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about that. It was in February, March. So, I mean, <laughs> taking having been here for the best part of, of a month and squashing it all down into one hour, you've got to be really, really selective. So are you allowed to tell me, for example, what you came to see in Cork? Well, actually, I'm not. Uh, that's the whole part of the idea. Don't get mad, but I can't. But what I will tell you is this. I've been coming to Ireland for 40 years. And even though I'm not a big fan of reincarnation or conspiracy theories, I have an admission to make. I'm totally convinced, uh, having been there so many times, that I've lived in Ireland in a previous life. So I'm already an addict. I'm there. You, you, you don't have to sell me on Ireland. I'm, I'm well in love with the country. Uh, but I also have to make sure that my love affair doesn't cloud what I'm showing the the audience, meaning that I'm giving them something that's truly accessible to them that doesn't, you know, romanticize it to the point of not being realistic. So that's what that's what our, our, our challenge is, and hopefully we'll be able to do it. Tell me in the, that in the course of the couple of weeks you spent here, you would have, because that's the job of the program, you would have met somebody or seen something or discovered some phenomenon, shall we call it, that we will genuinely say, oh, wow, I never thought about that. Well, you know, I, I, you, you talk about Cork and Southwest Ireland. Well, there's also a place that I'd never been to that I am now totally in love with, and most people in Ireland have never been there. It's Cape Clear. Ah, well, yes. And I'm telling you, if you haven't been, you know, I love the idea that where you can go to a place where there's only 100 people on an island, you only get there by boat, uh, you have wide open spaces, great history, great food, great culture, you have an opportunity to take a really deep breath and uh, and think. That's the, the beautiful thing about Ireland is, is, is I'm, I'm, it's another admission, it's one of the places in the world where I actually sleep the best. Really? And yes, uh, it has to do with the air, not the Guinness. <laughs> um, and, and, but I will tell you that wherever you sleep the best, that's where you think the best. That's where you create the best. That's where you love the best. That's the place where you always aspire to come back, which may explain why I've been there for 40 years, right? Yeah. You, you said about Cape Clear and I just said, oh yeah, as a Corkman, I'm well familiar with Cape Clear. I haven't been there in many years, but I know the beauty of it. Um, I, I think the message coming through your voice, Peter, is don't take something like Cape Clear for granted. This is special. It is. It is. And, you know, I'm, it, it's one of those places where, name another place. And Ireland, by the way, you can name a number of places like this, but I'm talking now as an American. Name a place where everybody knows everybody, where nobody locks their door, where everybody knows everybody's story, and it's a very positive one, where people, no matter who you talk to, and you sit down with them, the storytelling begins and you're fascinated. Uh, this is something that's uh, that we. I wish we had more of in the United States. We don't, but you have it. Yeah, we have another with the likes of Sherkin. We've we off the southwest coast. Actually, we have a number of of wonderful islands and, and island communities. It'll be great to see that showcased in a program like yours. I hope so. It's it, and it's just one of a number of things you're going to see. And remember, this is a show that the best compliment we could ever get. 
and sometimes we get it, is from the people in the country that we visit saying, I didn't even know that. So we're seeing it from a different pair of eyes, and hopefully we can enlighten a few people along the way. That's, that's absolutely matters. So you've been to coming come to Ireland for, for, for 40 years. Tell me a bit about yourself. Do you have, have you Irish roots? Do you know? Ah, I searched them out. I actually went to, to that we did already. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sad to say I don't. However, uh, the folks who did it for me, uh, they came back with unbelievable information that only they could get. And uh, let's just say you're talking to a Viking. <laughs> ah, well, of course, you see, with the Berg on the end of the name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, the yeah, Vi- so- now the Vikings, the Vikings, Peter, came to Ireland, and they weren't exactly the most friendly tourists that we ever remember having. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, please forgive me. I, I didn't mean it. I know. Uh, but, but you know what? The cool thing about it is that at the end of the day, uh, if you come here for 40 years, I'm sort of an unofficial Irish person because... It's, it's one of those things where you always look forward to coming back. That's the true definition of home. And, uh, and guess what? It's, it's mine. Yeah. And have you stayed in Cork often? I have. In fact, um, this goes back many years ago. A good friend of mine from Los Angeles who's a, a major screenwriter went and bought a house there. He said, you've got to come over. And, of course, I you know, got on my little air and air flight and went down, and, and he picked me up at the airport I was at his house for maybe eight minutes where I drifted into the most unbelievable deep sleep I've ever had. And that's it. I said, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where was that? What part of Cork was that? Ah, you know what? I can tell you how I got there and I can tell you how I walked around. But remember, this this is uh, – I don't have the map in front of me. But I will tell you this. In order, We were on the water. But in yeah. order to get to the water, we crossed over a field with a lot of cows. And um, and then uh, and then got down there, and it was just magical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, West Cork is all is all of that, and so is East Cork, and so is our whole country. And you know what, Peter? Because of the last couple of years, when when we weren't able to travel, I think we as Irish people got an appreciation of how beautiful our country is. And and it's fantastic that, that a major show like yours will feature it. So hopefully around Patrick's Day. Uh, I didn't say that, you did, but you're probably right. <laughs> That's a political <laughs> answer if ever I heard one. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Peter Greenberg, host of Hidden Ireland, host of Hidden Travel. It's a whole series that he does on, on PBS. He's in Paris right now, then moving on to Lisbon. I, 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 I envy him his job. And I mean, I envy him. I want to go see all these places and actually get paid for it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, be showing in the new year on PBS. Peter Greenberg. And it'll be showing not just on PBS, but it'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Apple. It'll be on YouTube. It'll be everywhere. Great. And Cape Clear. Now, there's a man. There's an endorsement, if ever there was one. Uh, if Ed is listening on Cape Clear... I hope you're keeping well, old friend, Ed Harper and the goats on Cape Clear. There's a man from the United States of America who thinks that Cape Clear is a little corner of heaven. And who are we to question him? Oh, wait, but we knew first, didn't we, Ed? We did. Oh, eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Come here, tune us in on your smart speaker. I know that a lot of people are heading off on holidays over the next few weeks. And you can listen to the opinion line wherever you are, or 96 of them wherever you are, once you've got us on your smartphone. So pop over there now, get the app, and put it on your 
a smartphone or take your smart speaker with you and hook it up to the Wi-Fi by the pool and uh, ask it to play Cox 96 FM. And of course, all the other channels are there. We've got the Back Garden Festival is on, the Hit Mix is on, the Fit Mix is on. Loads of fresh new music there. Plenty of it. But it's all and, and all the podcasts. And if you're away on holidays, you don't have to religiously listen to the Opinion Line every day because our podcast goes up on the app every afternoon and of course all the individual podcasts from different parts of the show go up also so there's plenty of ways to listen to Cork's 96 FM not just around Cork but around the world and you know what I'd love to do over the few weeks ahead of us as you are heading off on holidays send me a greeting from poolside or from beachside or from the beach bar just to say hello send us your pictures Send us your photographs from wherever you are. If you're an Opinion Line listener in any of the four corners of the world travelling for the first time in a couple of years, send us a picture. Send us a greeting. Someone's just taken out, I won't mention any names, Joe. Uh, someone's just taken out a television ad to tell you that you can send a WhatsApp voice note to his radio show. We always knew that because people have been doing it here for months. 083 396 96 96. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 0818 96 96 96. On Quartz 96 FM. I just had a lovely email from the proudest Irish mammy in the world right now. That's Brenda O'Reardon. Talking to Aideen, uh, who is training with the Navy and looking forward to her first assignment. Uh, talking to her there in the last hour or so and she's training as an army or military medic and she'll be heading off uh, to sea on her first assignment very, very soon. Just listened to your interview with my daughter Aideen this morning. Thanks for this. I'm so proud of my beautiful daughter joining what is a male-orientated occupation and seeing how she's blossomed as a caring and conscientious person. Please wish her best of luck next Monday as she sets sail on the George Bernard Shaw, her first assignment. The Irish Navy is in good hands with our Aideen as part of it. And that's from the proudest Irish mammy, Brenda O'Reardon. Only too delighted, and she was a joy to talk to. An absolute joy. Thanks, Brenda. I meant to do this earlier on. Uh, apologies for not doing so. Big shout for Shanice Pepper, Shanice Brown, Jade Guiney and Summer Nolan from North Prez in Farinree. They won gold in Switzerland over the weekend at the Youth Start Entrepreneurship Awards. Great achievement. Well done from everybody at North Prez and indeed so say all of us. 0818 96 96 96 on, on the leaving cert Owen says we've sacrificed thousands of teenagers once again to the leaving cert it's one tradition but the sun isn't shining what about the other tradition it usually shines on leaving cert week have we angered the gods I'm looking out my window here in studio one and the sun is shining now it's not exactly splitting the stones like it has been on many another first day of the leaving cert but it isn't raining which for this particular June is uh, is the best we can hope for, so far anyway. Someone said there last night, go home June, you're drunk, it's raining. <laughs> 0818 96 96 96. Now, it might only be June, but already they're talking about the BT Young Scientists and Technology Exhibition, because as you know, it happens every January, and this year... It's, well, next year, next January, it'll be live and in person after two years of virtual 
exhibitions. I'm joined by uh, Mary Cahalan, or Mary Cahalan, who's the head of the exhibition and uh, joins me to chat about it because there's a six month run in, uh, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? It's a six month run in. Uh, the, the projects don't just miraculously arrive uh, in Dublin uh, in, in early January. So it's now you're calling for entries. Yes, absolutely. Um, all, most of, of the second level students um, uh, would have finished school um, and best of luck to all of those doing their insert or their, sorry, showing my age, junior starting and leaving cert uh, starting today. Um, but for everybody else, um, it's an opportunity to get the thinking caps on, start looking uh, around them, what interests them and uh, start thinking of ideas for projects. Um, we'll be looking for um, their entries towards the end of September, so just when you're back in school again. Um, so over the summer months is a really good time to start thinking about what you'd like to do a project on. And I think we forget, uh, Mary, that every year we are blown away by the quality of what our young people are capable of and what is going on in their minds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been involved now for over 20 years and every year I go, right, they can't, they can't come up with any more brilliant ideas, but they do every single year. The one difference this year is um, it'll be the first time in three years that we'll be able to physically interact with the students, talk to them um, and see their projects um, in Dublin, so we are all so looking forward to that. The judges and, and everybody at BT Ireland mm. and everybody involved can't wait. I've spoken to some, you know, highly experienced physicists and scientists and chemists and biologists, and you name the kind of an ist that I've spoken to over the years. Highly experienced people, and they walk into the exhibition centre and they look at 14, 15, 16 year olds and they say, hang on a second. Why didn't I think of this? Yeah, that's the, that's the great thing about science and discovery. There's there's so much that hasn't been uh, looked at or tapped yet as such. Uh, sometimes it's just a nuance and a different way of looking at things that brings up absolutely fantastic research and results um, for the students. So that's the really, really good thing about it. Like the... The subject matter is so vast that people can investigate, like we have four categories, so with chemical, physical, mathematical sciences, biological, ecological sciences, technology and social behavioural sciences. So there is so much that anybody can turn their mind to and come up with a project about. Is it that, uh, Mary, at that age, you haven't yet been shackled by the big world? Is that, is, is yeah. there some, is, is that some element of it? Yeah, I think it's probably that you don't have as much fear as you have as you get older. Um, so definitely, you've got to remember all of these students are in school um, and in learning or learning from home or whatever else. So they're constantly being inquisitive. They're constantly doing research. They're constantly looking at an innovation. So that's what makes a difference for, for that age, age group as well. But also what we found in the last number of years is that the students are, are looking at their futures. They're looking at the environment, sustainability, how they can help their futures because of something that that other generations haven't looked after as well. Yeah. So they've only got one future and they want to protect it. Yeah, their environmental projects are really well worth looking at um, because they are looking, well, this is my planet. You know, I'm only 15, 16, 17 years old. 
this is what I want and here's how we might go about getting it. Also, when our winners go forward to international competition, they punch well above their weight there too, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. We were delighted last year um, after a postponement for a year that the European Union contest for young scientists went ahead virtually, unfortunately, um, in Val- uh, Valencia in Spain. And two uh, of our projects are a winner uh, from 2021. Um, sorry, 2021, yes. Um, both actually projects from Cork um, came second in his category and then our winners from 2020 came first in their category um, and that was Cormac and Alan from Colossi Column who are actually sitting doing their leaving certs this morning um, and they ha- made it 16 times out of 32 years that Ireland have come first um, at that competition. Yeah, so the call to, a call to attention as it were is on now. When is the submission deadline? That will be towards the end of September. Um, so plenty of time, uh, as I said, for people to start investigating and looking at what they do. All we need from uh, the students and with the help of their teachers um, is to fill out a, an online application form and to do a one-page proposal for us. And that is telling us what their project's about, how they hope um, they'll come about with their results and what they hope the results will be. So quite a simple uh, yeah. process. And the website and the schools do all the, the heavy lifting in terms of paperwork and stuff. Yes, absolutely. So the website is www.btyoungscientist.com. We're not quite open yet, but all of the information yeah. that people need to make an entry is there and uh, all the ideas and what the judges are looking for suppose, and different tips and tricks as I well. I suppose they've been using the, the summer break maybe to, to, to break the back on the project or maybe get some notes down, get some ideas in the can. I think so, yeah. I think that that's what, what normally works really, really uh, best for the students. And they they go back in fresh in, in August, September in to talk to their students, pitch their idea, or to their teachers, sorry, pitch the ideas to the teachers, see if they are workable or not, um, and then enter. All right. Okay. Well, we look forward to it because Cork does extremely well year in, year out at the BT Young Scientist. That's uh, uh, Mary Cahalan, uh, the head of the competition. So they'll be thinking about it during the summer. The entries come in September and we have done extraordinarily well with it. It's many, many years since I visited it. Uh, I was in school myself, actually, and we went up for the day on the train. When the train to Dublin took four hours, we went up on the train and then we got snowed out of it. (laughs) <laughs> so the train took all night to come back home but it was just magnificent absolutely brilliant to see what young people were producing then and what they produce now for the BT Young Scientists A couple of texts in about your TikTok thing. All babies are born ugly, but blossom beautiful, says Lydia here. All right. You have a theory that all babies look like Christy Moore when they they're do. born. They, they look like Christy it's... Moore in the middle of a song. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. yeah. My two, anyway, both look like Winston Churchill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've got photographic evidence to prove that. Casey and Ross in the morning with Noel DC Cars Blackpool. Exclusively Skoda in the city. Find your next car online at noeldc.com. Open 24 7. Something happening in Kinsale, uh, Kinsale Youth Theatre, are up to mischief. There's a murder. There's been a murder or a mystery or a suspense, and it's all a big project. And it comes to a head on the 10th of June. Fiona McGowan, good morning. 
Hello, PJ. How what, you doing? What are you at? It's a two-part production. What is going on? <laughs> it's um, it's actually three films, um, short films that the kids have made over the last, um, written and um, produced themselves over the last uh, 16 weeks. We started working early January, I think it was. But um, yeah, it's three films. Two will be broadcast on our social media pages um, on Friday and the one on Saturday is going to be performed live at 4pm from our premises here in Kinsale. So what's it all about? Well, um, it's it's kind of a riotous murder mystery about um, an annoying American tourist who is found dead in um, the Bowling Green um, in the municipal hall here, so um, it's a, a, a character called Penelope Patterson finds him, and um, it, it kicks off a, a sort of riotous affair. Yes, yeah. yes. And I suppose Kinsale would have seen one or two of these annoying American tourists, very valuable and very welcome American tourists, but the ones, <laughs> yeah. the ones that you can see them, you can see them coming over the hill. You can see them coming over the hill. This one in particular, I haven't really seen too many of this guy now in Kinsale, thankfully. Um, and we're very happy to have our American tourists. I don't know why the Americans got such a bad rap in this show, but they, this one has. But um, yeah, we're very glad to have them. Okay. So who, who's involved? I mean, these things take time and they take effort. Who's involved? Well, a, a good few artists for a start. Obviously, the kids. Um, um, myself, um, I'm a theatre director and a producer. Um, uh, I have film artists Neil O'Driscoll and Mags Mulvey. Um, they've been working with the kids as well um, on Sundays. And um, uh, actors Damien Punch and Katie Mullins. So they're the artists that have been involved with the um, development workshops with the kids over the last couple of months. The name is fascinating. Painted Board... Painted Bird is my company's name, yeah. But the the the, the show's called Maybe Maybe Not, um, and I actually have two members with me today um, from Kinsale Youth Theatre, Eva Buckley and Liddy Norman. They play two characters, Penelope Patterson and Donald Donaldson, who happens to be American. You would have okay. guessed that, though. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, can, can I talk to one of them? That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. They're both here with me. Great. Who we got Hi. first? Eva Buckley. Okay. Hi, Eva. Um, how much fun has this been? Um, extremely fun. I was a bit unsure about it at first, but now I'm really glad I stuck with it. Yeah. How much work is involved in putting something like this together? Um, quite a lot of work. Like some of the acting, even just sitting around can be kind of tiring. Like you can get really tired at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, a lot of work has been put into this. Right, right. And how how many months have been working on it? So you've you've obviously had to keep it all secret now. What the, what the answer is? That'll be live on on Saturday. But but how much work have it has it taken away? I mean, are you at school? Or are you waiting to do an leaving cert? Or obviously not today. But um, well, um, I'm just in sixth class, and uh, it's been like every Sunday, and like for the past few weekends, Saturday and Sunday, working up. To the live show and making the movies. Cool, cool. Who's there with you, Eva? Uh, hi, I'm Lily Norman. Lily, how you doing? How much fun has this been? Oh, it's been absolutely great crack. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about how you got involved. Well, I've never heard of it before, but my mum became friends with Eva's mum, and since Eva was doing it, Eva's mum told my mum, and so I did it. Yeah. And 
yeah, it's been really great crack. <laughs> cool, cool. So, what's been the favourite part? Uh, learning the lines, acting the part, or watching how it all comes together on screen? Uh, it'd be the filming. Um, that's been really interesting. Yeah, we were really lucky to have the weekend that we had um, a couple of weeks weekends ago to shoot. Yeah. Um, was splitting the trees, wasn't it? So we had really really fortunate if it was the last weekend we'd have been drenched oh, God, yeah. But, uh, yeah yeah but uh yeah it looked really great it's it's incredibly funny um, right. so where can we get to see it guys if you can log on to our facebook we'll see the first two films when will be released tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m and on saturday yeah, it's going to fall down on us there. For, it's going to fall down on us. We'll get the details of where of where we can get it because the line's just going to crack up. But pet, it's the, the there's a Facebook page involved. We will get the details there, Fergal. And I'll give you the the Facebook page, and it'll be live on Saturday for the finale of the three part. Right, where are we going? Oh yeah, I wanted to find out what these lads are talking about. It's simple enough. Really, too yeah. complex, really. <laughs> no, just, it'll be as fast as you can yeah. go. Start to finish. Yeah. Close the eyes and pull like a dog. <laughs> Close the eyes and pull like a dog. Noelle Moran, who are they? Um, you're Donovan Brothers. You're Donovan Brothers. And yeah. where, what are... Now, I know that obviously they're talking about rowing, but what in particular were they talking about? Um, the Rio Olympics when they won silver. There you got it. There Yay. you got it. Well done. <laughs> well done. Right, you have got our daily 150 euro voucher from Foot Solutions, celebrating Brilliant. 15 years in Cork, Noel. Thank you very much for that. She's our winner for today. We have another one tomorrow and another one Friday. Thanks to Foot Solutions, celebrating 15 years in Cork. Free your feet and the rest will follow. Right, Maybe Maybe Not is the name of that show. Part one will be online on the Kinsale Youth Theatre social media channels from 4 o'clock on Friday, June 10th. Uh, you see the lead-up then uh, to the court case and watch as the evidence unfolds. Part 2 then is performed live online in Kinsale Youth Theatre on the 11th of June, Saturday at 4 o'clock. So it's two parts. I guess if you look up Kinsale Youth Theatre on Facebook or look up Painted Bird on Facebook, the company will come up and all the deets you need will be there. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Hear the full show on our app, by podcast or on 96FM.ie.